Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined by my good friend, Steve. Aloha. Hi, Steve. How you doing, man? Hi, I'm okay. You know, COVID times are trying times, but we're doing all right. For sure. (laughs) Steve... Are you a fan of Ron Howard films? I am a fan of Ron Howard films. You know, Opie's always been a good guy. (laughs) That's how you know him, huh? Well, it's one of the many ways in which we know him. Not Richie Cunningham? I mean, he's also Richie, you know. He's also a character in American Graffiti. He's he's a prolific kind of guy. Happy Days was my shit when I was a kid. Yeah? Like, that was my favorite show for a small portion of my childhood. It's interesting. I remember my mother enjoying it. I didn't dislike it, but I never really got into watching episodes of it. I don't know. I saw reruns, of course. Like, I wasn't around right. when it was new, but, I mean, I don't know. Something about it was just, like, endearing to me as a kid. Big but, fan of the Fonz? Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, until, of course, they jumped the shark, which came from Happy Days. It did. <laughs> but. <laughs> oh, jumping the shark. Quite literally. The Fonz, at some point in Happy Days, stopped being cool and started being, like, too accessible. You know, like... <laughs> right? Arthur Fonzarelli had to grow up at some point. Like he, yeah, well, I guess so. I mean, like he became like a teacher. Like, well, that's not very cool, is it? No, it's not very greaserish, is it? <laughs> <laughs> the early episodes were about him just being like a strong, silent dude that'll beat your ass. Like, if you yeah. talk to him too much, he'll beat your ass. It's amazing how many spinoffs came out of that show. I think Charles in Charge was technically a spinoff of that show, and uh, Joni loves Chachi, and uh... Joni loves Chachi. What was the one with Robin Williams where he's Mark the Alien? Mark and Mindy. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say the one. <laughs> he said, said the title. Yeah. Was Laverne and Shirley? You know, I feel like Laverne and Shirley was a spinoff of something, and it might have been that. I don't remember for certain, but that sounds right. Yeah. Anyway, Ron Howard. Ron Howard. The man. He's directed a lot of stuff. I mean, um, do you like any of his stuff, though? Like, um, of his movies he's directed? I mean, this one. <laughs> um... Uh, I like I like I like Willow quite a bit. Um, he's done some other stuff. I'm a little bit partial to Splash. It's a sweet movie, and uh, my father worked on it, so I've, I kind of grew up watching that movie. Uh, Cocoon is kind of kind of a neat one. I, I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid, but as I've gotten older, I've liked it's kind of an interesting, fun concept, neat concept. Aliens making the old people young again. He did Backdraft, which is kind of a fun ride. Would literally, I guess, there's a ride of it as well. Um, <laughs> the, the Universal ride. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a fun ride. <laughs> right. Oh, he did Solo. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I, I thought it was fun. I mean, not perfect. We've discussed this before. The new Star Wars movies are definitely not without their flaws, but I, I thought it was a, a fun film. Um, now that one's actually pretty well liked among the newer Star Wars films. Yeah. Like, it, a lot of people like it. I agree. I like it a lot as well, maybe with the exception of the first half hour. Yeah, I can see that. I think my favorite thing of his, aside from this, though, was a movie called Far and Away, it's a big technical production. He shot it on 70 millimeter film. It's about Irish immigrants coming to the U.S. It's really a rather epic story. I mean, it, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is kind of Tom Cruise. But uh, the two of them were married at the point the film got worked, uh, got made. So the chemistry between them kind of worked. And uh, big, nice big production. But yeah, I think this, that and, and Willow are my favorites of his. Not Apollo 13? Very, very good film. It's a very good film. And I... I I enjoy getting to re-see it every handful of years, but it's one of those movies that I never think of to rewatch on my own, you know? I don't really like Apollo 13. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh well. 
So Ron Howard directed this movie that we're here to discuss today, Willow, 1988 film. But also, it was a George Lucas production as well. Now, Steve, are you a fan of George Lucas? Or have you ever heard of him? I mean, I don't know the name sounds vaguely familiar. Was he involved with uh, that uh, Star Battles movie? <laughs> no, he made that like stuff that, that is called Lucas. It's like a little like salt sugar candy. You pour it in your hand and you lick it. Oh, right. And then he used that money to make that Howard the Duck movie. Yes. That's what it was. You know, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of a lot of what Lucas has done. I, I think that he's kind of gotten lost in his own mind as the years have gone on. But uh, THX 1138 is one of my favorite films. I, I have a recurring fantasy about him letting me remake that, which is never going to happen, but it's a fun fantasy. Um, <laughs> you know, Star Wars, uh, the OT films are always going to be some of my favorite things in existence. Whatever we have to say about the other Star Wars films is its own conversation, but the OTs will always be among my favorites. He <clears throat> and Francis Ford Coppola co-produced the last movie that Akira Kurosawa ever directed. It's an amazing movie. Geez, what else? Uh, I mean, Howard the Duck has its own special place in my heart. It's not actually a very good movie, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, plus all the, the other things he's been involved in over the years. I will always hold it against him that the Star Wars films have been played with so much over the years. But, you know, but definitely he's a prolific filmmaker, regardless of what any of us, th any of us thinks of him. And I think uh, this movie certainly wouldn't be what it is without having had him involved in it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's his story, right? Yeah, well, let's see. That goes into the whole how did this movie get made bit. Oh, well, I guess here we go. Steve, <laughs> right. how the hell was Willow made? Okay, there's, there's some conflicting stuff out there about how this movie got made. Some of it is substantiated by books and interviews, but some of it isn't. My favorite rumor about this movie is that it, it actually grew out of a failed attempt on George Lucas's part to adapt The Hobbit. There is a rumor that I have never, ever, ever anywhere seen substantiated. If anyone can actually prove this, I would be glad to know that it was true, but I've never been able to prove it's true. That, that he started off, even before getting episode four made, wanting to do an adaptation of The Hobbit that he was then going to follow up with The Lord of the Rings, basically the inverse of what, what ended up getting done many years later. That got talked about for years. There's even a joke on an episode of The Simpsons um, from just after the Lord of the Rings films came out. It's a scene that's supposed to take place like in the late 80s or early 90s, and the comic book guy is talking to other people, and the topic of conversation is the list of reasons why The Hobbit can't be adopt adapted into a film. But anyway, there's a rumor that Lucas tried to option The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings books in the early 70s and started working on a script for what would have been his version of The Hobbit, and then when he wasn't able to get the rights to the to the book, he went ahead and did Star Wars and then adapted the Hobbit story into a script called Munchkins. I, I, the part about Lord of the Rings, I, I'm not really sure is true. The, the more likely story that gets repeated elsewhere, including in a book, is that he came up with, with the idea on his own that the story was always called Munchkins, that he didn't really know when he was going to make it, but that he went ahead and did Star Wars first, Munchkins. Munchkins was the original name for, for his story idea. And that, that kind of started off the process of what became Willow. There's another variation of the story that says that he wrote the part specifically for Warwick Davis, but I, I don't think that's true. As far as I'm aware, he didn't meet Warwick until they were producing Return of the Jedi. And most of the stories about the development of this film 
say that Lucas wrote the script for Munchkins or parts of the script for Munchkins years before Return of the Jedi, he wouldn't have even known Warwick at the time. But Warwick would have been a very small child at the time it was being written, right? Yeah, exactly. Because he was only a kid when he was in Return of the Jedi in 81. And in fact, Warwick, in the supplements for Willow, says that he was originally cast to be a background Ewok and that when Lucas really liked the way he was playing his character, they decided to make him Wicket one of the lead Ewoks. So it was totally accidental. The lead Ewok. The lead Ewok, yeah. I mean, when they when they, when they they brought Warwick in for that part, he, he was meant to be a background character and ended up becoming the lead Jedi, or not the lead Jedi, the lead uh, Ewok. Warwick says that Lucas did not discuss this project with him for the first time until 1983 when they were working on the first of the two Ewok Adventures TV movies. According to Warwick Davis on the supplements for Willow, that is the first time he'd ever heard about Munchkins. That contradicts a lot of what people say online. Exactly. And, and you know, it's possible that Warwick's memory is incorrect, but I, given that either of those stories could be wrong, I'm going to go with the one told by the actual actor. He says that the script already existed, that it had been around for years, and that it, in 83, while they were producing one of the Ewok Adventures TV shows, was the first time he ever heard about it. He also says it it took several years from there to get rolling, that he was called while he was on vacation with a friend years later to to come in to talk to Lucas and and Howard about the movie. At that point, the two of them had already hooked up. Howard, in 85, directed the first Cocoon. There was a sequel for it several years later that Ron Howard did not direct. Howard was at ILM sometime in 84 or 85, supervising special effects work on Cocoon when Lucas approached him about it. Lucas apparently wanted Warwick already at the point that he and Howard started discussing the movie, and Howard wasn't as convinced. They ended up having a massive audition. According to Warwick, it was the largest audition ever held for for little people, that they saw more little people for a movie part than had ever been the case in the history of filmmaking. More than Wizard of Oz. Yeah, more than Wizard of Oz. He also says that even, even including Oz... The Nelwyn Village, most of the people who came in to read for, for Willow ended up being background characters in the Nelwyn Village. The, the scenes in the Nelwyn Village have more small actors on screen at a single time than any other film in history, which was a big deal. It's an underrepresented group of people. Also odd that a handful of other notable small actors ended up in this movie, one of whom is an African-American actor named Tony Cox, who a lot of people would probably recognize as being the Santa's helper from the first Bad Santa movie. Yeah, and um, he's in Me, Myself, and Irene. Yeah. He doesn't have a speaking part here in Willow, but he's uh, yeah. he's been in a lot of stuff since. Yeah, absolutely. And he was also, I didn't realize this till I looked him up out of curiosity, he had also been one of the background Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. So oh. he and Warwick knew each other. But he, you know, you don't know who they are in Jedi because they're all in Ewok costumes. I think Kenny Baker at some point makes an appearance in this, in one of the scenes. You don't really get a good look at him, but Kenny Baker is, is R2-D2. Yes, I um, believe he's in the band at the festival. That's right. So uh, so anyway, yeah, so Lucas, one way or another, had been sort of stewing this idea for a long time, since the 70s. He approaches Howard about it in 85. Howard says, yeah, that sounds great. Let's get an actor. Lucas says, I want Warwick Davis. Howard says, I'm not convinced. Let's have an audition. So they have this huge audition. Howard ends up agreeing they should just use Warwick Davis, um, who was only 17 at the time. They did not have a full script. They just had what Lucas had come up with as a story element. Neither of them wanted to write the script. They ended up getting Bob Dolman. Bob Dolman was basically a 
TV writer. He had done a popular television show called WKRP in Cincinnati, which was on in the early and mid-80s. He'd done some episodes of uh, Second City TV, which was a uh, SNL-style comedy show filmed in Canada. It was famous for launching the careers of a lot of Canadian comedians, including Rick Moranis. A lot of the people who were on that show later made appearances on SNL. But Dolman's career doesn't include a lot of other movies. In fact, the only other really big project he ever wrote was Far and Away. He, he did do a movie back in 2002 called The Banger Sisters, which I didn't even remember, and a couple of others. But anyway, he was handpicked. Bob Dolman was handpicked by Ron Howard, mostly because they had written the pilot uh, for a TV show back in 83 that didn't sell. Um, Howard also liked the stuff that Dolman had written for... Uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, he was in and out of Lucasfilm for months. They went through something like six different drafts of the film. The We can talk about some of these details more as the film goes on, but what they started off with is the shooting draft for this film had a lot of additional background for some of the characters and some scenes that, that did not get made, get into the movie. Some of those scenes were shot, but then cut. Some of them didn't get shot at all. But uh, that's sort of the, the lead up, the background to, to getting the movie made. Nice. Yeah. As I understand, I know this isn't about pre-production stuff, but there are like sequel books. Yeah. Yeah. Lucas ended up getting together with Chris Claremont of comic book fame and writing three sequels. They, Lucas apparently had conceived this much in the way he'd conceived Star Wars as having been a trilogy. And uh, the film made money, but not what they were hoping. It was actually more successful overseas than it was in the U.S. It was more successful in America on home video than it had been at the box office. It had been very difficult for them to get this made. I guess I should have added this in, but Lucas didn't want to finance the film himself, and almost the same thing happened with this as did with Star Wars, where he went shopping at the basically every studio in Hollywood. None of them were really interested. Fantasy films were not doing very well at this time, some other big fantasy projects like Ridley Scott's Legend and the movie Kroll. Legend especially had been critically acclaimed. A lot of people loved that film, but it just did not make very much money at the box office. And most of the studios were really nervous about making a fantasy film. Lucas ended up going to Alan Ladd Jr., who was the guy who'd been running Fox when he sold Star Wars. Alan Ladd Jr. was the one guy in Hollywood who'd been willing to buy Star Wars. Lucas figured... It that could, guy really went to bat for Lucas yes. in the terms of, of getting Star Wars made. Yeah, absolutely. And he did the same thing here. Lucas went to him with Willow and he was like, yeah, I'll do that. Let's do it. Even though the studio knew it was a huge risk. But because the film didn't perform as well as they'd wanted, Lucas went in saying this is going to be the next E.T. Where This is going to make E.T. money. And unfortunately, it didn't. It, there's no Universal Studios Willow ride, unfortunately. <laughs> right? There should have been. But that would be fucking awesome. It, yeah, it would be awesome. Or, or like a Willow show? That would be great. But um, yeah, so the sequels just were, were not going to happen unless Lucas was going to finance them himself, which he could have, but he chose not to. Instead, he teamed up with Chris Claremont, and uh, they wrote three books. And it's very funny that uh, the, the commentary on the Blu-ray releases of Willow are just copy-pasted from a 2001 DVD release, and at that point, nobody knew where the franchise was going to go, and, and Warwick in the commentary talks about how they did books instead of sequels, and he was always a little sad that he would have liked to revisit the world of Willow and see what, what Willow was up to, and, and uh, in the last uh, year or so, they've announced there's going to be a, a Disney Plus sequel series that he's going to be on. I'm so in for that. I'm so in for that. I'm so excited. That's like one of the series adaptations that I'm most excited for in my life. Right. Because I love Willow so much. 
And we can take this opportunity to talk about our experience with Willow. Like, I grew up on this movie. Yeah. I loved it as a kid. And I remember other kids did see this. Like, other kids knew about Willow when I was younger. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I think there's, like, not a lot of people do know about it, but I think there's, like, an age gap thing here where I think if you're over 30, you know about Willow and you've seen it. If you're under 30, maybe, maybe not kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've got a brother who's four years younger than me, and I think he's aware of it mostly because I watched it in the house growing up. So, yeah. I mean, Willow got some video games, which I never played, but I looked into, and some of them seem pretty fucking cool. There's an yeah. arcade game where you can choose to be like Willow or Mad Mardigan, and it looks oh, yeah. fucking awesome. Like, it looks really cool. God, I remember it. I don't think I've touched it in 25 or 30 years, but I do remember it existing. I used to have this thing when I was a kid where I would judge arcades based on if they had Moonwalker or not. So... <laughs> I considered an arcade to be legit if it had the Moonwalker cabinet. And if it didn't, I was like, ah, it's kind of a half-ass arcade. And you you do the the Holy Trinity, which was Moonwalker with the T2 game and then the Aerosmith movie game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You mean the FPS? Or it's not an FPS, but like the Aerosmith shooting game, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't actually based on a movie. It was just like an Aerosmith movie game. It's so weird. It's like at Disney World, they have the Aerosmith ride. Yeah. (laughs) And there's no... I I know that some of the stuff at Disney World is unique anyway, but there's never been a counterpart to that here in California. (laughs) And I'm like, why? Of all the unique things for Florida to have, why an Aerosmith-themed ride? It's a good ride, though. Yeah. It really is. But there's also a Willow NES game, which is... It looks like The Legend of Zelda. Right. it, It seems to play like that, which seems pretty fucking cool. I was going to say about the Willow Arcade, I think now my new bar for arcades, I know there's not very many of them, but is going to be if they have the Willow cabinet instead of Moonwalker. Like, I'm going to look for that when I go out for uh, arcade games. Dude, completely by accident, I won't mention them by name on the pod, we can discuss it off the pod, but two people who you happen to know introduced me to a barcade, I think it's in Silver Lake, like a year and a half ago, and it turned out to have one of the rarest arcade cabinets in the world inside of it. I don't think the rest of the people I was with really knew what it was, but I noticed it and it was incredible. I've, I haven't seen one of these in person in 30 years or more. Which one? It's uh I don't forget the name of it, but it was it was one of two or three similar cabinets made by Sega in the early 90s and it used a specialized projector and crystal focusing system that was built into the bottom. It's not a normal looking cabinet. It's got a flat top with a dome and it projects the characters into the dome. And there's one that's a Western where you get into shootouts and a second one where it's a fighting game and different fighting characters. These things were rare to begin with. Even in the early 90s when they were being made, they were $30,000, $40,000 a piece or more. Very few arcades bought them. They were complicated and difficult to take care of. And this arcade happened to have one of them. They had the, the shootout version, I think. And I haven't seen one of those anywhere in years. I think the last place I did see one was in the arcade at Disneyland because it was the kind of place where they'd, they'd get them. The Starcade. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. But man, I mean, the Willow, the Willow, I, I don't, I don't think I've seen one in an arcade since I was eight or 10 years old. I was born in 83. I mean, that's a good luck finding one, man. <laughs> There's also a point and click like Commodore 64 Willow game. Yeah. So it got a few video games different. These are games are all different. It's not like one's based on the other. Completely different games. And then there was a board game, which I found online, but I've never played or heard of. I would have loved that as a kid. I, right. I was really into board games for a while. Was there a Willow-themed Monopoly? I, I don't know for sure there was, but I feel like there was. <laughs> Maybe. There was everything Monopoly. Right? <sighs> well, let's discuss Willow, Steve. Let's go right into the movie. Willow opens with some opening text. 
it kind of basically says that like seers have foretold the birth of a child it's setting it up there is a child that's going to bring about the downfall of the queen the queen's evil and this is like the threat to her right yeah queen bav morta and she is the queen of a kingdom down for yeah uh, nokmar she's the queen of a kingdom called nokmar Willow does not do an amazing job of setting up the world they live in. It's not a bad job, but like you don't you don't really get any respect for how big it is or how many different species or kingdoms are in it. They just sort of let you know there are Nell ones and then there are the Daikini who are like normal sized people. It sounds shitty the way I phrased that. I don't mean it to be, but uh, you do get the impression that Daikini live across multiple kingdoms. They mention at least three separate Daikini kingdoms during yes. the course of the movie. But they don't tell you if those are the only three or or where others might be in any case. But, uh, yeah, she is the queen of a Daikini kingdom, one of the Daikini king- kingdom called Nokmar. She is a sorceress um, played by an actress named Jean Marsh. Not a very nice woman. Um, not a very nice woman? <laughs> no, not a very nice woman at all. What do you mean? Um, well, um, Jean Marsh in real life was probably fine. I, I mean the character. I should oh, be clear. Okay. Yeah, the character is not a very nice oh, woman. okay. Um, Jean Marsh is actually quite well known. I thought you were going to say you bumped into her at like a Starbucks or something and she was like, out of my way, peck. (laughs) She was only in a few other movies, but one of the other movies she was in was Return to Oz, which is one of my favorites. So, but yeah, uh, no, the sorcerer she plays, Queen Bav Mord is not a very nice woman. In fact, the people I saw interviewed about working on this film were all, all had glowing things to say about having worked with her. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, she's, she's been told by, by Sears psychics, I guess, that a baby with a special birthmark is going to be born and that one way or another that baby is going to result in her not being queen anymore. So she goes on a rampage, grabbing and kidnapping every pregnant woman in the entire kingdom to try to figure out which one of them is going to give birth to this kid. Right. And eventually they do find the baby, but like one of the... uh, Midwives. Midwives that works for her decides to turn on her and like sneaks the baby away, right? Yeah, I mean, she's going to kill this kid. I mean, she's got a whole ceremony planned where they're going to, like, banish the baby's soul to some nether realm, but basically it's the same as a death sentence. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. It, so the midwife, in a moment of, of emotional sentiment, I guess, responds to the begging of this baby's mother and just, just grabs the infant and runs away with it. Doesn't last very long. Right. But, yeah. So she kind of, like, goes on a little bit of a travel expedition and then eventually gets tracked down by I guess the queens like part of her like henchman force are like these warthog dog things yeah she's got these mutant dogs that a lot of them were puppets but they needed a few that could run so they put giant rubber um, heads on rottweilers and just had them run around the set but uh uh, yeah, I mean, you get the impression she's gone with the baby for at least a few weeks before she gets tracked down because the next time you see her with, with the infant, the infant's got hair. It would have taken a few weeks for that to happen. Um, although she's got way more hair than she should. Yeah. And, and Warwick Davis says during the commentary, they, they did, they wanted the look of the hair, so they had the babies used in the film wear wigs. And they couldn't use normal wig glue because the baby's skin is too sensitive for it. So they were using things like honey. To, to hold the wigs down on the kid's head. It's pretty funny to think about. Can sort of imagine the kid, like, sticking their hand under the wig and then licking their fingers, you know? <laughs> I probably would have. But, yeah, so, yeah, she gets tracked down just just before... Well, she knows the dogs are coming. She can hear them. And just before they get to her, she bundles up the infant onto a raft made of reeds, uh, Moses-style. Yeah, I was going to say Moses-style. <laughs> and sends her, sends her upriver to uh, hopefully end up somewhere better. 
and in the next moment we see the poor midwife get get killed by these dogs. I learned from Davis's commentary that's one of two moments that was cut out of the English release of the film. At the time, the censors in England, they really did call themselves censors, were still so strict, even that scene of the dogs attacking her was more than they would allow to be run. For a PG movie? For a PG movie, yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, the baby, who we later learn is named Alora Dannon, floats upstream and is found by some Nelwins. Now, we talked about Nelwins and Daikinis a little bit, but Nelwins are the little people. Right. Right? They have their own little hobbit village. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you can, even though I don't think that story is true, you can definitely sort of see why somebody might have think that, might think that Hobbiton was the, the, the inspiration for the Nelwin village, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of similarities with Lord of the Rings, and yeah. I have heard people make many complaints about that. <laughs> right. Um, but where, from where I'm sitting... A lot of high fantasy borrows from Lord of the Rings. Well, I mean, yeah, and on top of which, and no insult to it because I love it, but even Tolkien borrowed from a ton of existing fantasy. I mean, you can't, at this point, who invented dragons? I, I, I dare you to figure out who. Who invented dwarves? Who invented elves? There probably is some forensic literary expert that can pinpoint exactly which story from 2,000 years ago fairies first appeared in, but like, come on, at this point, those are just fantasy tropes. They're going to appear in everything. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, if you play D&D, a lot of stuff you'll see connections to Lord of the Rings in terms of, yeah. like, I, I think Tolkien did come up with, like, elves of that type, of, like, the D&D type, yeah, you know, yeah. where they're taller, you know, they're kind of, like, smarter. Yeah, certainly you get, you know, you get certain unique variations. Warcraft has its own variations on some of those character types and different fantasy books do different things. I mean, look, even vampires, right? Like, vampires aren't always exactly the same in every story about vampires. Some of them have more rules than others. Some of them are more traditional. So, yeah, for sure. But I think, like, you know, in general, yeah, you're just going to find a lot of that kind of stuff in fantasy. For sure. Uh, but Willow's kids do find the baby. We, we, we meet Willow, and he's, you know, he's a farmer. He's your uh, pretty average dude. He's, I mean... You said he was 17, but in this, we're led to believe he's much older. Yeah, he's supposed to be much older, and I think I think Lucas liked the idea that he was only 17 because he wanted to give the impression that th these people sort of stayed young-looking hmm. for almost forever, you know? For sure. Willow's getting pushed around by Burglecut. Burglecut is so funny to me. He's, like, such a shithead. Like, <laughs> good. You still haven't paid your debts to me. Where did you get these seats? Well... Maybe I used magic. <laughs> You're no sorcerer, Afgood. You're a clown. I sell the planet seeds around here. Now tell me where you got them. My family's been gathering them in the forest since last fall. There's no law against that Mr. Burglecut. Magic? You'll need magic to expect to get your planting done before the rain start. I will have this land, Afgood. And you're gonna end up working in the mines. <laughs> Brutal Cut really is. He's a complete ass. He's, he's an ass the entire story. And it's funny because Warwick describes that actor as having been really, really friendly to work with and it being sort of difficult to do do a lot of those scenes with him because he kept wanting to, Warwick kept wanting to like laugh or smile. I mean, he is funny. Like when he gets like in Willow's face, which ha happens a lot in the very beginning, it is funny. So I could see that. Right. Uh, Willow has two kids and he's married to Kaya. And uh, I, I don't know, I think the, the chemistry as a family unit works really well. It's just, like, I'm pretty invested in this movie at this point. Like, the two I, children were great. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, I think Warwick said so too, that neither of them ever appeared in another film, but they were very good. Huh. Yeah. Well, Steve, maybe you can tell us about kind of what happens next. We see 
the town festival as it is, and uh, I don't know, it seems like a fun time. Yeah, yeah, they've got a they've got a town festival, and there's a lot of dancing and, and eating and drinking. And uh, Warwick, uh, or not Willow, I should say, Willow is putting on a magic show. Um, we we sort of learn that he's an aspiring magician or sorcerer, that he knows how to do some basic magic. And um, well, he wants to be a sorcerer, but like all he knows right now are like fake out tricks, you know? Right. Like- <laughs> and um, he uh, is is sort of plying his craft, but one of the big one of the big things about um, this society, or, or what Warwick is really after, Will is really after, is that there's there's a a head wizard in this society, um, played by by a small actor named Billy Barty, who's probably the most famous small actor to have ever lived. God, he that guy was in a ton of movies. Um, he's he's the um, the high old one. the high old. Thank you. That's that's the term I was trying to think of. The high old one. Barty Barty was also in. Um, Legend and um, UHF. He did a voice in The Rescuers Down Under. He did modeling. So speed back to the Hobbit connection. Ralph Bakshi did animated versions of, of uh, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings back in the seventies, and he had Barty come in and do motion capture work for the animations of Bilbo and Samwise. Oh, the rotoscoping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So the High Old One every year at this festival apparently holds a a sort of competition to see who's going to be his next apprentice, but nobody's been picked in years. And uh, Warwick Willow, I gotta remember to call him Willow for the sake of the story, Willow gets up on stage eventually with two other Nelwins to try to compete to be the uh, High Old One's apprentice, and they're each asked to pick out which finger is used for, I think, elemental spells or earth control spells. The power to control the world is in which finger? Yeah, and the, and none of the three of them picks correctly. Although you do learn later in the, in the story that Willow knew the right answer, and for whatever reason, or for some reasons, chose chose incorrectly. I, I do like that scene quite a bit. <clears throat> so do I. Like where he says, you know, he holds up his hand, and you're supposed to pick which finger on his hand, but the real answer is your own finger, which yeah. is cool. Like it, it's small, but I like it. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, oh yeah. So at this point. I guess we should say Willow has brought his two kids along to the festival, but his wife has stayed home with the infant. And his his wife initially said we should take the kid to the 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 council, the the town council. And Willow doesn't want to do it initially because Willow's worried that the infant's a bad omen, and that if other people know that his family found her, that when bad things happen, the village will just blame them for bringing the baby in. Right. Willow, do you think we should take her to the village council? No. No, they'll think it's a bad omen. There'll be a flood or a drought, and everyone will blame me for it. Well, Oscar brought around that daikini, didn't he? That's right, he's that lousy farmer too. Let's get him! But during the course of the, the festival and just after the high old one has had Willow and two others up on stage, Bavmorda's dogs attack the town. And they tear everything up, and they hurt some people, and it becomes obvious after the, the group of them have subdued one of the dogs that they were there going after... Cribs, basically. Uh, anything you'd keep a small child in. And the, the dogs were obviously looking for a child. And uh, Willow reunites with his kids, realizes they're safe, but then starts freaking out that the dogs have found his home. And he goes running home and realizes that his wife and the baby are okay. But it's in that moment he realizes that they can't just dump the kid, but also that if they keep the kid, more of this kind of thing's going to keep happening. So they eventually take the kid to the high council... Well, they go up to the high council while, while they're having a meeting with the townspeople about what just happened. 
But when they arrive there with the baby, the townspeople start saying, if we figured out who's responsible for this, we're going to do real bad things to him. Yeah. And, uh, Willow tries to like sneak away. Yeah, Willow's like, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. But the High Aldwin sees him and says, no, no, Willow, come back in here. And it's discussed what went on. And it's decided that Willow should try to return this Daikini baby to the Daikini, but with the help of some people from the town. Right. So that's kind of like the first quest of the movie is basically the High Aldwin tasks them with just go take it to some Daikini people. Just leave it with whatever Daikini you can find. This child is special. This child must be taken beyond the boundaries of our village, all the way across the Great River to the Daikini Crossroads. Give it to a tall person and that's that's the end of it. You know, we don't need to be involved in this kind of shit. Any tall person you can find. And he sends them to a place they call the Crossroads, and they're not real specific about this, but you do get the impression it's it's basically a common traveling point across multiple trails between Daikini kingdoms. Yeah. And then no one know that, that if you stand there long enough, eventually you'll come across some Daikini. So Willow goes with a few of his friends. Well, he brings Migosh, which is like his buddy. Yeah, you know, Migosh's Mig- best friend volunteers to go with him. Right. And then he brings some of the warriors. Tony Bur- Cox is one of them. Yeah, Tony Cox goes with him and Burglecut goes with him. Yeah, Burglecut has to go because he's kind of talking shit in the High Aldwin. Like, it seems like he just makes Burglecut go because he's like right. trying to put him in his place. And at the, at the beginning of the film, there's one moment right before the kids find the baby where Burglecut is confronting Willow because he's mad that Willow is seeding his farm fields using seeds that the family collected. Apparently, Burgle cuts role in this village is he's the guy everyone buys their seeds from, and he's mad that Willow is using seeds that didn't come from him. Yeah. And then he makes a bunch of threats about taking Willow's farm because the farm's not doing well. And we'll talk about it more, but I think one of my small criticisms of this film is that that part of the storyline really doesn't come back at all hmm. later on. But <laughs> Like he might have lost the farm. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like he eventually just comes back to the village and it's like, well, wait, what's going to happen with all that other stuff? But you know what? Anyway, we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> I like that like right when they leave, like the High Aldwin, he does like some of his magic because, you know, he, is, he can do magic. He is a sorcerer, mm. but it seems like he's partially a fraud. The outer world is no place for an Aldwin. Give the baby to the first Daikini you see, then hurry home. Tuatha, Lokothrock, Tuatha. Go in the direction the bird is flying. (laughs) It's going back to the village. Ignore the bird. Follow the river. Move out. Like he's... He might be, like, the best sorcerer there, but, like, among the realm of sorcerers, he's probably, like, on the lower tier. Yeah, like, I, I get the feeling he, he mostly knows what he's doing, but there are some loose ends. Right. And he's, there's certain things he's never quite quite mastered. Like, he does the bird thing, like, he throws up, like, something in the air and it turns into a bird. And he says, right. go in the direction the bird is flying, but it just flies, in, like, back to the village. And he's like, ignore the bird. There's an that I, a lot. Of, I think a lot of uh, people assume it's a real girly story because of the name, but it, it really was a good story for boys too. If you're a little kid, there's a, an animated film that's based on a book called The Last Unicorn. It was made sometime in the early '80s, and sometime around '88 or '89, when I was five or six, roughly. My my mom uh, found it and and sat me down and watched it. it. Ended up becoming one of my favorite animated films of all time. And uh, one of my reasons I liked it so much is a character in it voiced by Alan Arkin, whose name is Schmendrick the Magician, and 
He's he's basically a wannabe magician, and he's he's making the the utmost effort all the time. He tries as hard as he can, but he's just not very good at it. And he constantly screws up his spells, and something other than what he intends happens. And it becomes a recurring element throughout the movie. And when the when the unicorn character first comes across him, because he can't do any better, he's basically working as a two bit magician in a traveling circus. And I, I just kind of like that. <laughs> kind of reminds me of Fizban. Yeah. From uh, Dragonlance Chronicles. Yeah, absolutely. Who we later find out is the god Paladine, but, like, <laughs> he is a really powerful mage, but, like, he's so bumbling that, like, more than once he just, like, launches a fireball, like, right in the middle of the party <laughs> and just blows the fuck out of everything. <laughs> I like those kinds of characters, you know? They, like, they, they, I think you've got to have a little quirkiness in your fantasy world. Uh, meanwhile, we get to see... Uh, Queen Babmorda, she's sending Sorsha, who's her daughter, played mm-hmm. by Joanne uh, Whaley. Joanne Wally. Wally, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. And, and uh, General Kale. Yeah, and General Kale. So we talk about the two of them. Hold just... on, let's just talk about, why is he the General of Kale, though? They got a General Carrots. <laughs> well, because General Spinach died in battle, and General Broccoli's off doing something else, so. What's Professor Plum up to? <laughs> right, what about Colonel Mustard? <laughs> um... So uh, we'll talk about the two of them real quick because I wanted to mention the two of them. General Kale, number one, has one of the most awesome helmets in movie history. It's got a skull on it. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's a fantastic piece. I hope it still survives somewhere. I would love to own it. That that character is played by Pat Roach. Pat Roach started off being a professional wrestler and ended up becoming an actor. He was in some pretty big movies. He unfortunately passed back in 2004. But he was in two, two classic Schwarzenegger movies, Red Sonja and Conan the Destroyer. He also played the Nazi guard who Indy backs up into the prop of the plane in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's he's he's the huge buff Nazi guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, just wants the box. Yeah, and he's, he was giant in real life, so they always cast him to play those kinds of parts. And, and he's great. He was awesome in that part. And um, Princess Sorsha was played by Joanne Wally. She was in a few other films. Most of her TV, her career was in TV. The one thing other than Willow she's probably most widely known for, really more in the United Kingdom than here, was a TV movie called The Singing Detective, which she, was, she starred alongside Michael Gambon. Gambon's career is so gigantic, it would take me 25 minutes to list off his whole resume, but a lot of younger <laughs> people would recognize him as having been a Dumbledore. In, the second Dumbledore. Second Dumbledore, yeah, in most of the Harry Potter movies. But uh, her and Kilmer fell for each other on the set of this film and during late production ended up getting married to each other. And uh, the marriage didn't go well from there. They ended up getting divorced a few years later, but they were so into each other for a period of time. There were a couple of scenes, one scene in particular, right after we'll get there, but right after Mad Morgan's had the the love dust sprinkled over his face and he does the lovey dovey stuff with, with Joanne Wally with Sorsha They'd filmed that scene once before already, and Howard decided he liked it. But they got to the point where the two of them had gotten married offset, and Howard could see that their chemistry together had improved, and he actually had them go back and film that whole sequence a second time after they'd gotten married because he thought they were better with each other. Nice. Yeah. I love that. I think their chemistry is great, and I believe they also had some kids together, right? At, at least one, yeah. maybe two, yeah. Um, they did have at least one child together. And the two of them lost the most story arc to the edits. Some of the material got filmed and then cut out, and some of the material never got filmed at all. But Mad Mardigan 
well, have we, we really haven't even gotten to meeting him. So let's get to meeting him. Yeah, we'll get there talk, in a minute. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that stuff as we go, I'm sure. But yeah, Bav Morta basically tasks Ko and Sorsha with being responsible for, for finding the baby. Meanwhile, we see the Nelwyn people, including Willow, taking the baby, and they're traveling. And I know it's not a lot happens during the travel, maybe a couple jokes here and there, but I really do love the traveling parts. It's amazing. And also something I was reminded of watching the behind the scenes is those travel scenes were actually more work intensive than a lot of the other parts of that film. They, they, they shot this movie partly in the UK, partly in Northern California, partly in New Zealand. And that's kind of like before filming in New Zealand was cool. Like, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. And they, they went there specifically, I mean, as a lot of New Zealand productions do, they went there specifically because there were certain natural features they were looking for. The, one of the production coordinators just mentioned that part of the reason they ended up in New Zealand specifically is they'd found some other locations they liked, but they wanted snow and it wasn't going to be snowing in those parts of the world when they were going to be shooting. But New Zealand would have snow. And so they went to New Zealand partly because they wanted the snow there. But uh, those walking sequences were filmed across multiple different countries and then edited together. There were several cases where they found these incredible backdrops, but then they made them even better by by integrating matte paintings in. Yes. And there were a couple of places where if you're looking for it, you can tell. But unless you're really paying attention, you, you, they're so beautiful. They're so well done, integrated in the shots, you lose them. We, we talked a little bit about how fantastic the matte paintings were in the first RoboCop, and they were great. They were. Um, and there's one scene in the original RoboCop looking down from the top inside the OCP building that works really, really well. But uh, this movie overall might be even better because they're, they're just, they're so perfect. They blend into these shots in a way where a lot of the time, unless you're looking for it, like you really wouldn't even notice. They're fantastic. And the really beautiful travel scenes are complemented by the score. Yeah. By James Horner. Horner's score is fantastic. Who, he, he just had done so many great scores. At this time, I think he had done Aliens, yeah. a couple of the Star Treks, two and three, right. Rathacon and Search for Spock. Um, but I think my favorite score of him outside of this is The Mask of Zorro. Yeah, it was a really good one. That was a really, those two Zorro movies with Banderas in them. Well, Let's just say the one. Right. <laughs> the second one is not the same, The dude. second one is not the same, but even the second one I thought was at least fun to watch. Like, they, it, it may not have been a very good movie, and I'll admit to that, but it was, it was at least entertaining. I think those two movies managed to capture a sort of old world, like 50s, 60s era classic film action. Yes. That was being lost at that point in history and is gone now. Definitely at that point. Like, that was yeah. like the last leg of it. That and the right. mummy, you know? Right, absolutely. And you, I, I, I don't want to go too far on a tangent, but people should look, pay attention. There, there was an established way of making big films that originated in the early to mid 50s that evolved into the late 90s. And then at some point in the early 2000s, the film industry was just like, we're going to do things differently now. Yeah, and I'm very not, strange. Right? And I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. A lot of the new big movies are amazing. But uh, but you definitely lost something there. And if you watch some of those big action productions from like 98 to 2003, you can see the last gasp of that way of making things. But yeah, sure, this is one of those scores, going back to your original point, sort of like uh, there's a, a, main, a main track that was used in the movie Crimson Tide. And it, it became so popular that for like 10 years afterward, other filmmakers would use that piece of music and trailers for their movie. And um, 
This was one of those. For years after Willow came out, other filmmakers would steal snippets of that main Horner theme song from this film and just use them in their their trailers. Right. It has like a sense of like um, epicness and like it, it really creates like a, a special feeling world, like a fantasy world, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Right. It, it's great. It really is. And the travel scenes are like Lord of the Rings before Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Now, I don't mean before the Lord of the Rings books, but like... The movies of Lord of the Rings, they give you a certain feeling when they're traveling, you know? And that's yeah. that's all in the filmmaking. That's not in the text of the books. Yeah. Like, that feeling you get, it was done first in this, it seems. Yeah. I mean, Peter Jackson had the benefit of borrowing, like, some of the best pieces of fantasy in general, but right. also, like, the animated Lord of the Rings. He got to, like, take what worked and put it on, in his versions, I think. And I, I would suspect that yeah. he took some of what worked in Willow. I'm I'm really glad. I know there are people out there that have criticisms of them, and I, I know that it, it, people can complain there are certain things that got taken out of the books for the movies that maybe should have stayed, and there are other instances of people saying, you know, there are certain scenes they didn't really need and they made the movies too long. I, I, I've got my own opinions, fine, whatever. But I think ultimately Peter Jackson having helmed those films was for the better. I think he did an incredible job by and large with most of them. I don't think most other filmmakers could have handled them. Funnily enough, if he hadn't let his creature obsession get the better of him, I think Lucas is one of the few other filmmakers who probably could have done it. And I think that if, I, again, I don't think that story is true, but if if George Lucas had done adaptations of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, to your point, I think the general feeling of this, which Jackson was able to replicate very well later, um, is much the way it would have felt. And, mm-hmm. and this is very much, if they'd made these movies in the late 80s, frankly, I think this is very much the way they would have ended up feeling and looking. There was a lot of, we'll get into it, there was a lot of -of state-of-the-art special effects work for this movie, which is very interesting considering that almost none of it was done with computers. Very, very, very few of the effects in this movie were done with computers. But uh, it was really a fantastic scope of feeling, I think. Absolutely. And our group of heroes, the Nelwyn, they do travel to the crossroads. They make it there eventually. And uh, they kind of camp out, you know, waiting to see someone. Somehow they miss that uh, Mad Mardigan is there, but he is there. He's in. The, they don't see him for a minute, right? Yeah, they sort of walk past him. He's he's in a crow's nest, which is a hanging, hanging sort of cage, like a small cage. Yeah, yeah. but but meant for a person rather than for an animal. And uh, oh, there's a word for this. I think it's called immolation. I might have that wrong. It's pretty pretty gruesome. It's a thing that actually existed in real life. There are different variations of it from different cultures, but the whole idea is basically they they put you somewhere you can't get out of. It's not a normal prison cell. Like in some cultures, they would brick people up inside of buildings. In other cultures, they would nail people inside of coffins. In this culture, it's the crow's nest. But basically, instead of jail, they would they would put you inside some kind of cell or container that you couldn't get out of, and they just leave you there to die. Oh God. Yeah, exactly. No food, no water. That's that's it. You just whenever you die, you die. There, there are, I don't want to get too gruesome, but there were writers from from a century or more ago who talk about seeing variations on this practice in parts of the Middle East and where they would entomb people inside pillars. And one of the writers talks about riding on horseback or camelback past the pillars and hearing people inside crying for water. So this is what they've done for Mad Mar- to Mad Mardigan. They've put him in this crow's nest to just die. And I don't have a lot of detail, detail but one of, one of the big elements that got written out of the earliest drafts of the scripts was background on how he got there in the first place. There was supposed to be a whole backstory slash side story about how Mardigan, Mad Mardigan started off being 
a knight of the kingdom tier as lean and that, that he'd, he'd been one of the best, but that he'd made a bunch of stupid mistakes and that he'd gotten into a relationship with a woman from another kingdom and long story short, like he ruined things for himself and there was all, there was supposed to be a whole side story that involved how he got there um, that, that sort of got lost. But it leads into another one of my small nitpicks in the film is that they find Mad Mardigan hanging in the crow's nest and he has a back and forth with them, which we can discuss, but eventually a group of soldiers comes past and one of them, they're all knights of Tira's lean and, and one of them is, is a knight Eric who knows Mad Mardigan and Mad Mardigan begs him to get him out of the cell and Eric, Eric calls him a thief, which is an accusation that he makes again later in the movie. <laughs> Mad Mardigan! What'd you do this time? Nothing you wouldn't have done in my place. I always knew you'd end up in a crow's cage. Well, at least I'm not down there herding sheep. What are you doing this far north? The Nakma army destroyed Galadorn. The castle? That mortis troops are crushing everything inside. Well, come on, let me out of here, Eric. Give me a sword. I'll win this war for you. Mad Mardigan. I still serve Galadorn. You serve no one. Remember? You sit in your coffin and rot. And they, they never address it. They never tell you why Eric is accusing him of being a thief. They never tell you why they're saying... It's basically just, just a comment. So I guess you're supposed to infer, like, oh, he must have ended up in the cage because he stole something. Right. But they never really tell you anything else aside from that. As a small nitpicky note to what you said, uh, Tira's Lean is actually a different kingdom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're from another kingdom that I don't remember the name of. They, like, say it in passing very quickly. <laughs> well, he says... Galadorn. Galadorn. Yeah, yeah and, and Mad Mardigan was supposed to be from Galadorn, and the rest of them were, and Tira's Lean is the other kingdom they were going to. Yep. And he also says that uh, oh, one of the things they established at the beginning of the film, actually, is that Galadorn has recently basically been destroyed by Bavmorda's army. Right. In fact, the first time you see General Kale, it's him notifying Bavmorda that, that her army has officially taken over Galadorn. Right. So. I mean, we're seeing things a lot from the perspective of Willow. But we get information that, like, there's, like, greater conflict in the land, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it's done pretty well. Like, maybe it's just because of how many times I've seen the movie, but I can, like, put the pieces together. Maybe I didn't when I was a kid, though. I don't know. I don't really remember. I, it, it took me a while, because I think the first time I saw this movie, I was seven or eight, and I really enjoyed it, but there was a lot about it I don't think I, the story-wise, I didn't really get. You know, it took me a while to figure out why he was in that cage to begin with. Yeah. I think some of that enhances it, because then like, you get more on rewatches, and that's cool. Right. Uh, one thing about uh, Eric is that his... I always thought his name was, like, Eric, like E-R-I-C. Oh, right. But it's, like, Eric. Yeah, it's, like, A-I-R-K. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you listen closely, they say Eric. Like, right. Air, and then K. Eric. <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm just going to call him Eric. We do get to learn some of the uh, b bad words, I guess, in the, their world, their right. unnamed world. Peck is what you call the Nelwyn as like a derogatory term. Well, that was really stupid, Peck. Don't call me a Peck. Oh, I'm sorry. Peck. Peck. Peck, 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 Peck. You be careful. I am a powerful sorcerer. See this acorn? I'll throw it at you and turn you to stone. Ooh. I'm really scared. No, don't. Don't. There's a, a peck here with an acorn pointed at me! Right. Give me some water, peck. peck. Yeah, they keep calling them, he keeps calling the, the Nelwyn's pecks. And uh, I don't think that would, would 
not that the word itself is a real word, but I don't think that would fly today because it's clearly meant to be like a racial slur. We'll see. I mean, maybe that will be addressed in the series. Maybe someone will like get mad at Willow and call him a peck in the Disney Plus series. Great, which then leads into a 45-minute conversation on tolerance. It's exactly what I needed to see in my Willow show. Nah, they're not going to do that shit. All right. <laughs> but, um, oh, just real quick, though, on Mad Mart again. I thought this, these real quick notes are funny. Um, apparently... Um, John Cusack did screen tests for that part and didn't, he didn't get called back, but, uh, he said that not getting it, he, at one point he said that not getting that part was one of, one of his biggest career disappointments. I think you'll enjoy this though. One of the other actors they considered was Rick Mayall. What are you staring at? The mega bitch! Oh, okay. Yeah. Drop dead Fred. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't know... I mean, Kelmer was the right choice, I think. I don't know what led them to him instead of Mail, but Mail apparently was one of the people they were considering. And uh, Warwick Davis said that he did some screen tests early on with Matt Frewer, who um, some people might know as, as Max Headroom. And uh, But yeah, that's pretty cool. And, well, I mean, Rick Mail was an insanely huge star in England. Yeah. And a lot of the actors in this were from England, right? Yeah, and a huge percentage of the production of this film happened in England. Right. A lot of it was shot at a really famous studio there called Eltry. El- I mean, he, yeah. he was a comedian and a TV guy, but <clears throat> Kilmer yeah. is perfect. Kilmer is perfect. He, and- he is top billed. Oh, yeah. I mean, which is crazy. I mean, it's funny that someone else gets top billed in a, in a movie that's about Warwick Davis's character. Right. A movie but, called Willow. It's from the perspective of Willow. Right. And Kilmer's career was on the steepest of, like, inclines at this point. He was still on his way up to his peak at this point. Right. He, he, he'd actually, he's a funny tie-in, he'd actually started off, his first real role was on a spoof TV show so it's a World War II spoof TV show, which we've discussed once before, um, called Top Secret, which was created in part by Jerry Zucker, who wrote and directed or directed Ghost, which is the last one I was on with you. Yes. <clears throat> so the first thing Kilmer ever did was a TV show for Jerry Zucker. Um, that was in the really early 80s. But then in 85, he did a movie called Real Genius, which has been shown on TV 100 million times. Top Gun is next. I mean, yeah, a year later in 86, he does Top Gun. Then he does Willow. I mean, and I'm not doing these. There's a few I'm skipping here. But after Willow, over a period of years, he goes on to do The Doors, Thunderheart, True Romance, Tombstone, Batman Forever, Heat, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Ghost in the Darkness, The Saint, Red Planet, and like two dozen other movies. So, I mean, this is this is gigantic. Right. You know, he turns into a huge star and was perfectly cast for this part. I agree. He's amazing. Yeah. What's going on? Smells like a battle. I suppose you're a warrior. I am the greatest swordsman that ever lived. Like when I think of peak Val Kilmer, I think of this and I think of Tombstone. Yeah, God, he was so good as Doc Holliday. I, I'm not exactly sure how completely accurate that is to how Doc Holliday was in real life, but I don't even care. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah, he was so good. <laughs> I'll be a Huckleberry. <laughs> Uh, one thing about Mad Mardigan is that his teeth are all fucked up when we first meet him to make him look scarier. Right. And then they look perfect, like Hollywood actor teeth, like after he's out of the cage. Yeah. And there's always so many funny things they do with movies like this. Like you see movies like Westerns or fantasy films where you know that just by nature, these people would be filthy almost all the time. But somehow like their hair is done and they're clean. Their clothes look like they've been washed. Like, these people have been in the woods for two weeks, but their clothes look like they were washed recently. Like, come on. So what they do is they basically reluctantly agree to give the baby to Mad Mardigan. He is a daikini. That's kind of what their goal was. I mean, Willow is like 
maybe we shouldn't do this. Like he's in prison. Yeah, Willow doesn't really want to, but Burglecut and the others are mostly just like give the kid up so we can leave. Right. And they do leave, and then Willow eventually gives it to Mad Mardigan and heads home. Well, starts to head home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not too long, but I do like the little brief interaction with him and Migosh. Like, yeah. It's very cute. Migosh, slow down. Oh, come on. If we hurry, we could be home by tomorrow morning. We'll be heroes. You really think so? Sure. Look, there's Willow and Migosh. The heroes have come home. Welcome back, boys. You deserve medals. Yeah, medals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me, gosh. Did we do the right thing? Absolutely. There's nothing to worry about. And uh, this is the last time. Well, they eventually free Mad Mardigan so we can take the kid. And it's the last time we see Mad Mardigan in the cage. I'm skipping a scene which we'll talk about. I don't want to, I don't want to skip it, skip it, skip it. But at one point in between takes, Kilmer was getting out of the cage to stretch his legs. And, um, the cage somehow came loose from its chain and fell and landed on one of his feet. Oh no. So a couple of scenes later, when they get to a fishing village, which we'll address in a moment, you can physically see Mad Mardigan limping and they just went with it because they figured he'd have a limp from something. But the limp is from the cage falling on his foot. That was uh, real. <laughs> yeah, I do recall seeing him limp a couple times in the movie. Right. He apparently also accidentally once tossed a cigarette down the front of an extra shirt. <laughs> apparently he had a habit, even when he knew he wasn't going to have enough time to finish it, he had a habit of just lighting up a cigarette every time they were in between takes, or almost every time. And he wasn't expecting Howard to be ready so quickly. So he lights up a cigarette. Ten seconds later, Howard calls action. Kilmer, from the story I've heard, flicked the cigarette behind him, not realizing anyone was behind him. And it went literally down between the breasts of some woman in her shirt behind him. And it, it almost caught her clothes on fire. And Kilmer, without thinking about it, based on the story I've heard, just ran over and stuck his hand down her shirt to try to get the cigarette back. Oh, no. <laughs> no, oh, dude. God. He's probably trying to help, but that's not how you do it. No, 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 absolutely not. But it just, just an, it seems definitely like something Kilmer would do. And apparently he was pretty precocious. Like Davis did not like riding horses because he only had one prior experience with horses where the horse literally ran off with him on it. And it took a lot of training and a lot of like goading to get him to get on horses for the film. And then there were scenes where he and, and Kilmer were both on a horse and Kilmer's horse was apparently, I guess, playful. It like it it, it 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 just it didn't it didn't want to behave itself all the time. And so Kilmer would use his horse to rile up the horse that Warwick Davis was on just to bar bother Davis, but like in a funny way. <laughs> like, you know, or like when they were doing when you do close up scenes, sometimes you have a stand in, sometimes you don't. When you're doing close up scenes, some of the time the the actor who you're in the scene with reads the other lines to you, even though they're not on camera. So let's say you and me are in a scene, they're doing close ups of you, they've got the camera three feet from your face and I'm sitting somewhere outside of you reading my dialogue while you talk back to me. Apparently while they were doing these close-ups, Kilmer would make faces at Warwick just to keep him from being able to deliver the line correctly. So I, I guess he's, he's kind of a funny person to work with. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, I've heard other stories from other movies where he's been difficult as well. Less funny and more of a pain in the ass, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the problem is, I, I don't I don't know, but I, I've been on enough sets and met enough of these types of people to know that they're pretty much all big personalities, 
And a lot of the time when one of them accuses the other of being difficult, the reality is they were both being assholes and neither of them wants to admit that they were being an asshole. So they just accuse the other one of being completely at fault. And like John Frankenheimer was a brilliant director. I know a lot of those stories come from Miro and Frankenheimer is a brilliant director, despite the fact that he did some shitty movies. But, uh, I don't think he was a real easy guy to work with. And I think a lot of that fighting was both of them. I'm not saying Kilmer wasn't responsible, but I don't, I don't really believe that Kilmer walked onto set and just caused problems. I think that was each of them fighting with the other one. Like, well, I mean, that whole production was a fucking disaster. It was, it was, they'd already lost one director at that point. Feruza Balk tried to quit and they forced her to go back to set. This is the whole thing. Yeah. Like a lot going on in that one. But in Willow, when we were kids, me and my friends, that is, and my family, one of the big quotes that used to get thrown around with Willow is, I stole a baby. <laughs> yes, the brownies are the best. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I stole a baby! I stole a baby! <laughs> yeah! That's my baby! Stop, wait, come back! Fuck you, stupid bird! Left! I love the brownies. I've heard, I've seen some criticism of them online, but I think they're great. I the, really do. No, the brownies are awesome. One of them was played by Kevin, um, Pollack? Kevin Pollack, who's had a pretty big career otherwise. Um, the end other, of Days? Yeah, End of Days. He was in, um, why am I forgetting the name of them? The, the big Brian Singer movie with, with Billy Baldwin and, and where they were all suspects. The Usual Suspects, thank you. He was in Usual Suspects. He's been in a bunch of stuff. Some of them were really good movies. The other uh, actor was uh, a guy named Rick Overton, who had a pretty decent career. He and Pollock were comedy partners. There's a story I really like, though, that apparently when they were filming, they, they never visited the actual set a single day during production, not once. They met the other actors, but they were never there for the actual production. Everything they shot was shot either at or near the Skywalker Ranch facility in front of blue screens. Right, and they also have some miniatures. Yeah. I mean, not not miniatures, they... What's the opposite of miniatures? <laughs> the, 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 like the little... Uh, Where they have the props that are enlarged to make them look small. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, they're like giant-sized props, yeah. yeah. They were in front of blue screens and stuff, and uh, so they spent the whole time working, it, excuse me, in San, near somewhere near San Rafael in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and apparently during the evenings, a lot of nights after they were done shooting, the two of them would go to a bar in San Rafael, it was an improv bar, which was part of the reason they liked uh, being there. The two of them had done some improv comedy. They were a comedy duo at the time. that They were making a lot of their living performing together on stage. And some of the nights they went to the bar, they'd get up on stage and do some improv just as like practice. And um, one night while they were there, one of the audience members, without asking or being invited, just got up on stage and started performing with them. And... At first, I, I, I don't know how he didn't notice, but I guess at first the two of them, Pollock and his partner Overton, didn't notice. They were just like, who, who the hell is this guy? And he started getting increasingly goofy, and it turned out it was Robin Williams. Um, <laughs> Williams famously lived in the San Francisco area. In fact, the whole reason they chose the restaurant Bridges um, for the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, it's the scene with him and the family where, where they choke. Oh, yeah, it's a big part of the big plot. part of the movie. Like, yeah. that was actually a restaurant that he liked to go to that was in a suburb that's in a suburb called Walnut Creek. I lived near there for a while. So he used to just frequent these places. And apparently, yeah, one night while they were there doing improv, he just sort of crawled his way up on stage with the two of them, which would have been a pretty fun thing to see in the late 80s. For sure. <laughs> Rest in peace, Robin Williams. Yeah. Uh, in the movie The Brownies, they capture Willow uh, and Migosh, actually. 
it seems like Willow and Migosh are kind of like fucked because like there's nothing they can really do. Like they're roped, they're tied down, and like these guys are basically saying like we're gonna torture you. This is a knockoff moment though. I mean, this whole bit got stolen from Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, yeah I like, mean it's it's <laughs> Gulliver's Travels, yeah. right? But it's fine. Whatever, it's fun. I like it. It's very brief. Like yeah. it's not like a major thing in the movie, but um, basically, what happens is Willow gets his second quest, right? Because. The brownies stole the baby immediately. Yeah, like immediately. From um, Mad Mart again. Yeah. And they bring it to their little brownie village. And again, for those that don't know, I I mean, you probably know, but they're like little like eight inch people, right? Like brownies are little tiny people. Yeah, they're tiny, tiny. I mean, they're like, the Nellans are small people, but the brownies are like like six inches tall. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're like shrunken people. Yeah. We get to see, I think, what is, I guess you can describe as, like, kind of like the spirit of the forest kind of character. It's Sherlindria. She, well, and the, I, she's, she's like a fairy? Yeah, she's like a fairy, a fairy. Like a kind of like a... Like the fairies the appear. Queen of the fairies, maybe? Yeah, and this is another one of my little nitpicks about this movie is they, like, they don't really explain very well what she is or where she came from or why she's the one that appears. You also never see her again. I feel like that's kind of like a, a fantasy trope, though. Yeah. To have, like a character like that give you your second quest. It's kind of like a Galadriel. There's a similar character yeah. in Dragonlance Chronicles, uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. She's like Galadriel. It's a good comparison. Yeah. But yeah, but, but then she, well, I mean, okay, Galadriel and the sword, so very much the same, because she gives, she gives Willow a wand, and that wand ends up becoming a necessary part of the rest of the story, but it's like, why? I mean, I'm not saying I don't like the wand. It was fine, but like, why is that wand special? Give me something here. Yeah, I guess there could have been a little bit more. Again... I'm, for the most part, fine with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't hate it. It's just, I, I, I guess my one consistent complaint about this movie is I think there should there are a few things they could have spent a little a little bit more time visiting. But. Yeah, I mean, it is a long movie, but I, I could do with a longer cut. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that when we get to the reviews. I want to talk about that a little bit. But yeah, I, I, it's, I've got a whole commentary, but I'll keep it for the end. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Well, Shalindria says, here, take this wand, Willow, and take it to um, a sorcerer, a good sorcerer named Finn Rizel. You are also going to take the baby who's named Alora Dannon. And Willow's kind of filled in on, like, what the significance of the baby is. Like, this baby is going to be the next ruler of the land, is going to take down Queen Babmorda, etc., etc. Yeah, and Tira's lean was, is where she purportedly will be protected and, and raised. But uh, Finn Rizel's got to go with her in order to make sure that it happens properly. Right. The idea is once you get to Tira's lean, you're good. Like, Tira's lean, they have an army, they have a king and queen. But you got to go to an island to get... Rizel first. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Willow sends Samwise home. <laughs> right. He's the Samwise of the story, for sure. He is, but he doesn't really stick around. Like, no. He, he wants to go. I mean, he's good-hearted, but... He is, but he also clearly wants to leave. Also, there's a scene I found out that got trimmed. When the brownies capture the two of them, they they fall down a hole. It's like a trap that's been left uh, in the ground. It's one of those things where you get a hole covered in leaves and people don't see it. And there was supposed to be an extra scene in there where Migosh gets injured falling into the pit. And that half the reason Willow sends him home is because he's just too injured to keep going. Oh. But for some, it's another moment. Like, they could have kept that one, but yeah. So Willow is joined by the two brownies, and he has kind of his new quest. He has the baby. He's got the two brownie guys, which are basically like comic relief little guys. Yeah, they're supposed to be helping him find his way. Right, but But. they don't have a whole lot, like, to offer. They just kind of, like, take a lot of credit. We have arrived! You are safe! Shh! Don't interrupt. 
Yeah. In fact, a lot of the time they just happen to be around while bad stuff they can't stop happens. And then later they they go after it. Like, (laughs) I think they inject some good comedy, though, throughout. They do. They do. What's going on? Shut up or I'll break your nose. You are mine to toy with. So the first place that Willow and the baby go, they, they find like a small Daikini village. It's like an abandoned fishing village. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's definitely supposed to be a fishing village, and it looks it's always looked abandoned to me. They don't encounter anyone else there. Well, they find uh, a little tavern, don't they? This okay. is when he re-encounters Mad Mardigan. Okay, yeah, I guess that's... Yeah, you're right. Okay, so he gets he gets Laura Dannon back from the brownies, thanks to Sherlandria, and she gives him the wand, tells him he's got to go find Finn Rizel. That's right. And then he, he, want, he sends Migosh home, and he wanders into Daikini territory, and he finds... Before he gets to the fishing village, the fishing village is a few moments later. He gets to the outskirts of a Daikini town that's right. And it's like a tavern in a hotel space, which is which is a pretty normal trope in fantasies and also sort of a real thing. Like old saloons in the 1800s in, in the U.S. would often have rooms to rent above the saloon. So it's not not abnormal. And uh, I actually now that I'm thinking of it, I actually quite love that scene because it's raining when he gets there. There's people milling around outside the canteen or the, the pub, whatever you want to call it, doing stuff and. He gets inside and he finds a whole world of people in there who are not very friendly when he starts asking if any of them can help him. No, you can tell no one are, like, oppressed. Excuse me? Excuse me? Could you spare some milk for this poor hungry baby? Get out of here, pet! Get out of here, my cooker! Yeah. Yeah, like, nobody makes any attempt to attack him, but it's really clear that they don't really want him to be there, and they tell him to piss off, basically, anytime he tries to speak to one of them. They basically say, get out of here, or we're going to cook you alive. Yeah, yeah, and another thing I learned, you don't even really notice them. It's just such a Ridley Scott-type detail, wanting set dressings that no one's even really going to notice. But, like, they covered the inside of this place with dead pheasants. Like, because, you know, they are, they get eaten, so it's supposed to look like food stock. But it took them so many days to get those scenes shot that the pheasants increasingly decomposed. And for whatever reason, Howard never had them replaced. So they just kept getting smellier and smellier. And Warwick was saying that by the time they got finished, it was unbearable being in there because the whole place just smelled like like a dead animal. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. That's disgusting. Right. It really is. But, uh, you know, Warwick, Willow goes into the pub. He finally gets into the pub. He tries to get some help from the Daikini there. They're all basically, we're going to cook your ass. Like, get away from me. And he ends up in a back room where it just so happens that Mad Mardigan has been having a little bedtime fun with a woman. A married woman. A married woman, yeah. And she's realized that her husband is on the way in and that Mad Mardigan needs to either leave or cover himself up real quickly because the husband is gigantic and is not going to be happy. Right. Well, they go with the uh, the comedic approach, dressed like a woman. It's like a woman, <laughs> right? And, uh, and you know, it's, he's, he's a goofy-looking woman. And at first, for whatever reason, the husband buys it. <laughs> the husband comes storming in, believing that his wife is sleeping with another man, and finds Mad Mardigan there with her, dressed as a woman. And at first, he buys it. He's like, oh, yeah, well, why don't we have a little threesome here? That's basically what he's after. He asks Mad Mardigan, he says, want to breed? Right? <laughs> And uh, so it's like, you know, it's a big deal if your wife's sleeping with another dude. But if she happens to have a friend over, suddenly they're both yours. Whatever. (laughs) It was a different time. Yeah. In a different world. Literally. Um, (laughs) Daikini rules are different. But uh, but before uh, before it can really come to anything, Sorsha and Kale and a bunch of 
their military, their soldiers arrive at the this The bad guys arrive. The bad guys arrive. And they pull everyone back into the pub looking for a Lord Dannon. Yeah. What I like is that Sorsha kicks Willow and that shit looks fucking brutal, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like Willow like comes up to her, he's like, you can't take her. And right. Willow just like gets kicked like he's nothing. And like the fall is so funny. He was saying in the commentary, there were certain stunts they wouldn't let him do because it was just too high a chance he really would get hurt. But he was constantly asking them to let him do the stunts. Right, like Leprechaun, yeah. Yeah, and there were a few times where it was really rough on him. In fact, we'll talk about it in a few minutes because it's relevant to him trying to get to Rizal. But there was one scene in particular that was really rough on him. And then they ended up not even using it in the movie. <laughs> So basically what happens is a scuffle kind of breaks out. Willow gets the baby and Mad Mardigan gets out of there. They end up together. They basically both jump and they make their way to a wagon. So right? while they're looking for the baby, Willow is holding Laura Dannon. Mad Mardigan is desperate to get himself out of this situation. So he grabs Laura Dannon out of Willow's hands and pretends to be a woman. But he then refuses to show Laura Dannon to Sorsha and Kale. And they realize something's going on. So in order to cause a ruckus, to give themselves the ability to get out, Kilmer's Mad Mardigan reveals his face, at which point the husband of the woman he was just with realizes he's a man and freaks the fuck out and starts punching soldiers. And while they're all busy dealing with him, Willow and Mad Mardigan run out of the building. But they don't have an immediate way to like leave. They, there's, a, there's a sword fight that ensues, and then they end up on a sled. Right, it's kind of like a, an Indiana Jones ish moment it is it's very much like the uh, rail cars in temple yeah yeah um i guess also another comparison would be uh, kingdom of the crystal skull like the greasers versus socias fight right. like like the two parties fighting that the the main characters aren't necessarily involved with but they instigated right absolutely yeah Basically, Mad Mardigan has to, like, kind of punch his way through people. They get on a wagon. Oh, that's right. This is the wagon chase. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the two of them end up on a wagon outside this pub, and it gets pulled along. Yeah, it's a lot. You're right. It is a lot like the Crystal Skull chase. Yeah. Yeah. And Mad Mardigan has said a few times that, like, he's the greatest swordsman who ever lived. Right. And we're, I think as an audience member, you're kind of, like, waiting for that. You don't get it yet. Right. Because he doesn't have his hands on a sword yet. Right. But, like, it's, it's in your mind. And you're not really sure whether he's really that good or if he's just full of shit. Because he does seem kind of like a, a con artist dude, right? Right. But he also seems like he might be good with a sword. And it turns out later on that he is pretty good with a sword, but he was also sort of full of shit. So, we'll talk about yeah. it, yeah. But uh, we get the big wagon chase, which is pretty cool. I mean, it's just, you know, some good good old swashbuckling fun. But at yeah. one part, and they, like, don't dwell on this in the film, but Mad Mardigan gets hit straight in the face with a flail. Yeah, that's right. One guy's, like, swinging a flail as he's riding. Boom, right to the... That would have taken his head off. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot like uh, Karen Allen getting hit by the tree branch in Crystal <laughs> yeah. Skull. Like, you should probably be dead, but... <laughs> Willow even, like, gets a little action -y. Like, he grabs a mallet and he, like, clobbers some guy that jumps on the cart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, Howard and Lucas and, and uh, Davis was on in for it, too. They really wanted the whole point to be, like, a hero can be any sized person, you know? And Willow's the hero here. And it, it, Davis talks about like really liking having done those scenes because it gave him a moment to be the person that fought off the bad guy, you know? Right. Yeah. Like, he'll do it. Like, he'll step in if he has to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so they, they, they manage to do that, and the cart gets wrecked. <laughs> yes. And they do eventually kind of get away, 
And at this point, it's like, okay, what are we going to do? Because Mad Mardigan's kind of like a loner. He's a Han Solo guy. You know, he doesn't want to, like, be connected to this quest if he doesn't have to. That's right. right. That's right. And yeah, so, like, Mad Mardigan, they, they finally they defeat these other guys. They know they've got some distance between themselves and the people looking for them. Mad Mardigan sends the two horses that are pulling their cart away elsewhere. He sues them away, knowing that likely the soldiers behind them will follow the cart tracks. So he's hoping he can distract them. And uh, he starts to wander off on his own, and Willow run, starts running after him basically to say, I, I can't do this without you. Like, it's obvious I will get killed if I try to complete this journey on my own. I need you to help me. Mad Mardigan, wait! Go home, Willow. It's a dangerous world. Yeah, and that's why we need your help. My help? Huh. What do you need my help for? You're a sorcerer. You're a great warrior and a swordsman. And you're ten times bigger than I am, stupid. Are you trying to make my life more difficult than it already is? Right. Yeah. He says, I'll, you can follow me up to like this point and then I'm taken off. Like up, yeah. up to like kind of close to the island that Finn Rizal is supposed to be at, like just yeah. outside of it. Right. And you can sort of tell that he's starting to feel a little bit of connection to these people and and maybe that he can redeem himself a little bit if he helps Willow. But he's not it's not totally into it yet. Right. You know, again, Han solo you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> For sure. Uh, but the group of heroes, they, they make it to the island, I guess not before having some black root, which is always something that caught my attention. <laughs> like, which is actually vanilla. Oh, that's yeah, what he's... Yeah, it's black root is a, a, a like a slang for vanilla. It's actually what it was in the film, too, vanilla root. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I, I... I always thought it was like tobacco. Yeah, you know, they give you the impression it's something really inappropriate. What are you doing? I found some black root. She loves it. Black root? I am the father of two children, and you never ever give a baby black root. Well, my mother raised us on black root. It's good for you. The tear on your chest, doesn't it, Dick? Her name is not Stick. She's a Laura Dannon, the future empress of Tyrus Lee. And the last thing she's gonna want is a hairy chest. <laughs> did you see what he did? He stole our black root. I'll get some more, don't worry about it. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe someone who knows will chime in the comments. I, I could Google it, but I didn't bother to Google it. I think that there actually is something with, you know, kids under a certain age, you can't give them honey. I think vanilla is one of those. I think really, really little kids, like infants, for some reason, they're not supposed to eat vanilla. Hmm. But whatever. I could be wrong about that. But uh, yeah, it gives her some some uh, black root, which Will gets upset about. And then eventually, the, eventually, finally, this is what I was thinking of. They make their way to this abandoned lakeside fishing village because Rizel lives on an island. And... Uh, they need to um, they need to get across the lake to this island to get to her, right? And uh, which they do, but we don't see. We don't see. Well, it's like we do and we don't. There's this is, this is a part I want to talk about a little bit. Willow doesn't want to take Alora with him to the island because he doesn't know what's going to be over there. So he convinces Mad Mardigan to stay on land with her while he goes to the island. And we do see him going to a dock and getting into a boat. And then the way the theatrical version of the film plays out. The next scene is he's already at the island. You're right. We don't really see the journey. But there's a connection point back here to a little bit of a story loophole. When when Willow and the group are first leaving the Nowen village, the High Aldwin gives him a present. There's three of them. They're magic acorns. These will protect you. Acorns? They're magic. Anything you throw them at turns to stone. Ah, oh, yes. And they turn things to stone. Willow only gets seen using two of them. 
during the course of the film. There's one he drops on a bridge in a scene we'll talk about later, and a second one he uses during the final fight with Bav Morda. You don't see him use the third one. The reason you don't see him use the third one is because there was a sequence that got cut out of the theatrical movie that took place during Willow's boat trip to the island. And on the boat trip to the island, he encounters a man who turns into a vicious fish-like creature and attacks his boat. And Willow uses one of the three acorns to fight that character off. And they actually shot most of that sequence and then trimmed it. And the footage they shot is in the bonus material on the home video releases. So there's a continuity error in the film. It's not a big one. You can just sort of assume he held on to it for later. But he was supposed to have used all three acorns. And you only actually end up seeing him use two because this sequence on his way to the island was cut. It's like a big animatronic fish, right? I think I saw an image of that. Yeah, yeah. For parts of it. There were parts they did a little bit in CG and then there were parts they did in uh, animatronics. This was this is what I was mentioning. One of the things I was mentioning a moment ago, Warwick had a horrible time filming this. They used a water tank for part of it. There were scenes where they had to drag him underwater, which he didn't really like. And, and <laughs> yeah. you know, for him, one of the issues with being that size is, you know, your arms and legs are so short, you don't swim very well. So he doesn't he's, he admitted, you know, he's, he's not a strong swimmer. And they had him in this water tank for days. They're dragging him underwater. He's supposed to have this big fight with the fish. And then uh, Howard was saying they had some of the same problems with the mechanical fish that Jaws. that Steven Spielberg had, had filming Jaws, where it didn't always work the way it was supposed to. And they went through, through just, I think, days or weeks to get this one sequence. And then at the end during post-production, when they were supposed to be filling in some of the effects, they decided to trim it. And it's like, I feel so bad for Warwick. He went through all that to film the sequence and it's like, we're not even going to use he it. He basically had to endure hell. Right. And for nothing. And and they create this weird continuity error with the acorn. And then it's funny. You don't really notice it. I'd never thought about it before. But if you look in the theatrical cut, when he gets to Rizal's Island, when he got on the boat, he was dry. When he gets to Rizal's Island, he's soaking wet. Oh. And the reason he's wet is because during his fight with the fish person, he ended up in the water. And uh, so that's another small continuity error that nobody really notices. <laughs> But yeah, then he finally he finally does get to the island where Rizal was supposed to be living. So Willow, as we mentioned, he does make it to the island and he gets to meet Finn Rizal, who is not quite what we expected. Not quite what Willow expected, that's for sure, right? No, it turns out she's a possum. Is that what it is? I she, was like, is this a squirrel? What is this? That's a bushtail possum. They're specifically from Australia. Ah! I'm Willow Ufgood. What are you doing here? I've come to find the great sorceress, Finn Rizal. That's me, I'm Rizal. This can't be right. One of Bevorda's spells transformed me. Believe me, it could have been worse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and the one they used apparently um, liked to nibble on Warwick Davis, so he did not really like having to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> it is on him a few times. Yeah. So, yeah, Finn Rizal, I guess, was banished from, like, the mainland and uh, transformed into an animal so that she couldn't be a sorcerer anymore. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff Bav Morda was doing on the side as well. There's a whole other element, which I'll mention in a minute, that goes to the portions of Sorcia's story that got cut. But, yeah. So, yeah, he finds, he finds that she is indeed a possum. Right. <laughs> and uh, I guess... As a possum, Finn Rizal is going to join them on their journey. Uh, the intention is for Willow to change Finn Rizal back, which Willow tries a little bit later, but not before 
getting immediately captured? Yeah, he tries three separate times, and those three separate times from a cinematic standpoint for multiple reasons are actually significant, so I'm going to want to mention them. But yeah, yeah, he does at three, three separate points tries to turn her back into a person. Right. I mean, well, we can talk about it in just a sec, actually, because they're taken yeah. captive by Sorsha, and uh, Mad Mardigan is also captured, who is, he kind of went on his own way, but just was basically immediately captured. Yeah. They're taken to um, the ice world of Hoth, right? And put in cages. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, this is when they end up in the snow. Yeah, this is, they're taken to the snowy uh, camp, I guess it is. They set up camp in the snowy area. Yeah, it's some sort of encampment, because Bev Morda's castle is elsewhere. Uh, but you were saying the effect of transforming into the crow, that's what happens around here. Yeah, so this is the first of three attempts, and on each of the three attempts, which are sp- spread across the movie, you see a bit more of the transformation than you did the previous time. The third one's the big one, and there's a big effect there I'll mention when we get to the third one, but um, even accomplishing this was really difficult for them. Willow is still perfecting his ability to even use this wand. Uh, Rizel is encouraging him to use it to try to turn her back into a person, because if she's in human form, suddenly she has access to her abilities and, and can probably free them. But when Willow tries to turn her back into a person, he ends up turning her from a bush-held possum into a crow. Hit a green and band, cried a blue knocked. I am a young, beautiful woman. Concentrate, Willow. Hit a green and band, cried a blue knocked. Hit a green and band, cried a blue knocked. Hit a green and band, cried a blue knocked. You all right? Nice try, Willow. <laughs> Farmers, chilling their sons, be farmers. Then no one really butchered that one. And there's a moment where the possum sort of shrinks and changes color and grows feathers and then transforms into the crow. Can't rain all the time. And just accomplishing that effect took a tremendous amount of work for them. It really is very neat looking also. It almost looks like it's going to turn into a spider for yeah. a second. Yeah, it does. You don't know quite where it's going to go. And it sort of plays into a moment with a troll on the bridge later where you see that, that he doesn't have complete control over what that wand does. But right. <laughs> he basically doesn't have any. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, so it, it was a really big effect and, and very important, you know, to, to, to see that he's having difficulty controlling the process and he's not quite sure how to do it. And, it becomes a recurring almost joke throughout the remainder of the film that she spends most of it stuck in some animal's body. She's a, she's a crow now for the time being. Right. <laughs> and uh, Willow and Mad Mardigan are freed from their cage, but the baby who was taken, they got to rescue the baby and then split, right? They gotta, yeah. They got to make their way still to Tira's lean. Sorsha's keeping the baby with her in her own private tent. And uh, yeah... Right, and that's where Mad Mardigan says, okay, I'm going to go in and rescue the baby, but not before getting hit with the dust of broken hearts. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like love dust, you know, and the brownies have played with it once before by accident. I, I One of them fell in love with a cat. Yeah, with a cat, yeah, and I can't remember which one. Was... Always chasing pussy in a bar yeah, if you've had was... too much beer, you know? Roy gets it on him, and Rule keeps <laughs> telling him, like, don't mess with that stuff, it's fairy dust, or like, it's too powerful for us, and he does... And then, yeah, Mad Mardigan gets exposed to it, and this is the scene Ron Howard had shot twice. It's actually one of two scenes he had shot twice. But uh, he had the scene shot twice because th- the take we see of Mad Mardigan being in her tent takes place after the, the, he and Joanna Wally had gotten married to each other. Hmm. 
Yeah, so he, he's been exposed to this dust. He, fall, he crawls into the tent looking for a Lord Damon, but ends up being so smitten at the sight of Sorsha that he, he loses focus, and all he wants to do is basically make up love poetry for her. Beauty of your eyes. One move, jackass, and you really will be a woman. You are my sun, my moon, my starlit sky. Without you, I dwell in darkness. I love you. What are you doing here? Your power has enchanted me. I stand helpless against it. Come to me now. Tonight, let me worship you in my arms. Get away from me! I love you. Stop saying that! How can I stop the beating of my heart? It pounds like never before. Out of fear. Out of love. I can stop it. I'll kill you. Death next to love is a trivial thing. Your touch is worth a hundred thousand deaths. I really love that scene. Like, right. I love it a lot. <laughs> Seriously. No, it's a good one. She wakes up and uh, basically holds a knife to his throat. But he's getting very, like, Shakespearean and, like, doesn't care. He's like, strike me down. My love will continue throughout the ages or whatever right. the fuck he's saying. <laughs> totally losing track of the fact that he's supposed to be grabbing the baby. That dust, like, kind of, like, makes you, like, high, right? It does, yeah. It gives you, it's like, euphoria. Yeah. Uh, but but like a euphoria where you're just in love with everything around you. Right. You know, if, if anyone's seen the episode of Rick and Morty where Rick gives Morty the potion to use on his crush and then it makes everyone obsessed with Morty, that's basically the way it happens. <laughs> it's pretty good, though. But, I mean, Sorsha's, like, taken aback and she maintains her aggression, but she's, like, she's into it. Yeah. She, she's, like, she kisses him. His Her side story had a whole extra dimension to her and she's not supposed to be Bev Morta's actual daughter. The side story was that she'd been taken from her actual father who was the king of Tirislein and raised by Bev Morta, but that her biological father was this really good king, this nice man who treated everyone well and they were supposed to try to use that throughout the rest of the story to underline that Sorsha's got this kernel of being a good person in her, but because she was raised by Bev Morta and has been used as a tool by Bev Morta, She's she's this she's doing all this bad stuff, but it's not really her. It's just the life she she was given. Oh wow, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, and this will play in. I'm going to talk about it in a few minutes. But there's another scene that extends from that story okay. that we get to that we, they skip over in a few minutes. Basically, Mad Martian gets caught in her tent, and like all like the villain knights show up, so like they have to make a big escape. And this is where big moment in the movie. Mad <laughs> Martian finally gets a sword. And he is pretty fucking good with it. Like, he's yeah, flipping it around, and he's, right. like, whooping everyone's ass. Like, you can tell he talked himself up a little bit. But, yeah, as it turns out, he actually is really good with the sword. Yeah, he he's the greatest swordsman who ever yeah, lived, Yeah, man. We, you know, that, that might be a bit of an exaggeration. No but way. But certainly, no. certainly he can fight. That I maintain that as canon. <laughs> so, like, whenever it comes to, like, sword-fighting heroes, I say Mad Mardigan wins because he is the greatest swordsman who ever lived. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Willow's reaction to him. We, uh, Willow, Willow sees what he's doing. He goes, you are great. It's so corny, it, but right? sweet. And it's a perfect line. And uh, Davis says during his commentary for the film that it's the only line in the movie his mother hates. And he's never understood why, but apparently Warwick Davis's mother hates that line. You are great. There was a, <laughs> a girl I used to see, and we were very much into the same kind of movies. Right. And uh, I remember us watching Willow one night and, you know, having a really good time with it. And then that line came in... I was like all endeared and like, you know, heartwarmed by it. And right. she just started laughing her ass off. Right. 
like we had we had a sort of oddly similar experience when we saw the anniversary screening of the Matrix and some of some of um Morpheus's dialogue back when the movie first came out sounded so badass, but there was a group of teenagers in there with us who'd probably never seen the movie before. There were a couple of moments with some of Morpheus's dialogue where they started laughing, and I'm like, yeah, in retrospect, some of those lines were pretty goofy. Well, like, you had to be awesome. there in 99. You did. You did. Still an awesome movie in any case. But yeah, I mean, you, look, the only way to have understood 99 was to have been there for 99. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They were not born, so yeah, they didn't get it. Right? Oh my god, don't even tell me about that. <laughs> Some of these children weren't even alive during the century that movie came out. Jesus. So, Mad Mardigan, Willow, and Alora Den, and they do escape. They hop on, like, a shield, and they have one of the moments in movies that, like, I feel exists for kids. So kids could be like, that looks fun. You might be right. This is the moment I meant to compare to the rail car scene in, in Temple of Doom. Okay. Where it feels a lot... And like, I, I like those rides. It's good. It's not as good. It's not as good as the minecarts in Temple. But it's a good one. I, I had fun with it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty It's pretty cool. They're doing their little, like, snow sled moment. Right. It's shot really well. It switches the first person a couple times, and which is good. This is another one they really tortured Davis for, like... Some of those scenes were either shot against a blue screen or they were done at slower speed while somebody on the skis towed the, the the sled they were on. But there were several moments where they really just had to sled down a really steep section of hell. And some of those moments they used Davis's stunt double, but a lot of them he had to actually be on, on the sled for. And there are several moments where he really does look convincingly terrified. And it turns out it's because he was actually terrified. Like Warwick talks about it in the commentary. He's like, yeah, I was, I was... I did not want to do it. They made me do it several times. I was scared out of my life. He's like, I hate roller coasters. I don't go on them. I've been on one ever. I'll never do it again. Like, it's a, he, he did not like that. And he had to do something like, like a dozen takes of it. <laughs> it is very real for most of it, but there yeah. is one shot of it where it's a dummy and it looks really funny. Right, it's true. <laughs> There's like one shot. Other than that, it looks great. But like, you really have to look for that. Yeah. There's, it's like that moment in T2 where he... Terminator's coming off the overpass into the L.A. River on the motorcycle. And yeah. if you're looking, you can see the stunt double's face. Right. <laughs> At the time that movie was made, you know, you never expected to be able to pause that with, like, high quality or anything. Oh, so. no. No, yeah, absolutely. There's so many of those gaffes now that you people only noticed because home video became a thing. Like, if you couldn't pause it, you never would have seen it. Right. <laughs> Uh, Mad Mardigan ends up becoming a human snowball, right? Yeah, he ends up becoming a human. He falls off the sled at one point. Willow makes it the rest of the way down and ends up sliding his way into somebody's home. But Mad Mardigan, because he'd fallen off, turns into a giant human snowball and ends up rolling down the hill and slamming into this house as a giant snowball. That was uh, a giant styrofoam cylinder, apparently. Oh, okay. <laughs> So With a dummy leg or whatever. Yeah, a dummy out. leg inside. But they did a really good job of making it look like snow. And the sound effect, the the, the uh, foley effect for that is fantastic. You really like. You never would have thought it was styrofoam. It really does feel like it's hitting something. And there's a moment inside the cabin with Willow where the what Mad Mardigan slams into the cabin, and you get Willow's view from inside. And the snow hits Willow in the face. Yeah. And for that take, somebody just literally chucked a shovel full of snow at Warwick Davis's <laughs> face. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny but yeah <laughs> that is funny man uh, so now they're in this little village but the the villains are still after them so they kind of like hide out among the people yeah it turns out Eric's army is there yeah and uh, the group of them end up hiding together in a sort of hidden basement 
inside this cabin. It's kind of the equivalent of Han's little hidden stowage chambers in the Millennium Falcon, you know? Yeah. So it's like hidden little little basement stowage room. I was thinking like in Glorious Bastards, like the basement. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You get that kind of trope in a, in a lot of uh, those kinds of movies where somebody's hiding right below the floor. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, that does come up a lot, doesn't it? Does. It does, and it's almost always the same setup where the door you lift and there's a little like set of steps that goes down. Yeah. It's used a lot. I mean, everything from fantasy movies like this to Holocaust movies where it's a group of Jews hiding in a basement and yeah, like all over the place. Right. What they do to escape is they basically find a way to take Sorsha hostage. Yeah, they don't intend to. They're hoping that the group of the soldiers just won't find them down there. But right. Sorsha's smart enough to look for a panel and ends up walking down there. And this is where, like, I guess the dust of broken hearts that Mad Mardigan had is kind of, like, fading away because he's, like... Yeah. He's, like, a lot more aggressive and, like, he kind of, like, is hazy. He doesn't really, like, remember... What he did. Yeah. It's another sort of... I don't mind it, but it's another sort of fantasy trope where you get exposed to, like, fairy powder, and it's really powerful, but it only lasts for an hour or so, and then you sort of come off it. <laughs> uh, they do have some, like... I think good like dynamic building between the two of them as they travel though because she's a hostage with them for a pretty short time but like yeah. they have some pretty good interactions which kind of like I guess leads to their romance like yeah she, it seems like she's mad that he didn't mean it holding me too tight well I don't want you to get away why because I'm your sun your moon your starlit sky get your hair out of my face or I'll chop it off Did I really, did I really say those things last night in your tent? You said you loved me. I don't remember that. You lied to me. No, I, I just wasn't myself last night. I suppose my power enchanted you and you were helpless against it. Sort of. Then what? Went away. Went away? I dwell in darkness without you and it went away? Right, absolutely, and and even more so. So going back to the portion of her backstory that got edited, so he he grabs her, he gets her a knife uh, by knife point. Eventually, he puts Willow on her horse and puts himself and her on a second one, and they they start heading off toward Tira's Lean, which is where they're supposed to end up with Lord Dannon. And she had Sorsha's character was supposed to have been, like I said, the daughter of the king of Tira's Lean, and uh, Bev Morta stole her from her father, and. Well, there's a moment that got cut from the film where Mad Mortigan's got her on the on the horse and she asks where he's taking her and he tells her, I'm taking you to see your father. Because there was supposed to be a part where he'd found out that Sorsha's father was being kept in suspended animation inside the castle. And... Uh, right, we do see that at Tira's Lean you actually, a minute later. Yeah, yeah when they well, get But we there. see people in like stone, kind yeah, of? Yeah, they're like in crystals. Yeah. And her father is one of them. He's the guy with the long white beard. And we actually see him out of the crystal at the end of the movie. You never you never get told who he is. But that's supposed to be her father, the rightful king of Tira's Lean. Mad Mortigan, at some point in story content that got trimmed out, was supposed to find out that's where he was. And he knows that Sorsha has been looking for her, for him. So he tells Sorsha, I'm going to take you to see your father. You're going to find out what's really going on. You're going to see that Bav Morda is, is bad and she's using you as her, her tool. And then Sorsha, they use this in the theatrical cut. Sorsha eventually gets away from him before they even get there. Right. Yeah. They do make it to Tira's Lean, our heroes at least. Yeah. And uh, what they expect to be there is not there, right? It's kind of like an abandoned 
seemingly like all the people there have been turned to crystal or killed. It's, yeah, it's a it's an empty castle. Mad Marty, seemingly the rest of they're all of them really they're expecting an active kingdom there because because the the fairy had told Willow if you take the baby to Tears Lean, there's people there she'll get taken care of. And Mad Mardigan at this point in the story is supposed to know that that's where Sorsha's real father would be. But none of, yeah, none of them knows that that's what's happened there. And I just want to take a minute to talk about like the way things look in this movie and like the props and the sets yeah. are pretty fucking amazing. They are. And actually that sequence is one of the things they went to New Zealand for. There's a sort of funny looking canyon with rock out, uh, outgrowths of rock in it. And they, it's a real canyon. They used matte paintings to look, make the rocks look bigger than they really were. But they wanted that location. It was one of the things they went to New Zealand to get was that location. Nice. Yeah. But I just also mean like the inside of the castle and all like the little, <sighs> the little like siege weapons they have yeah. and like all the crossbows and shit. Like it's, it's so fucking good. You yeah. Know? Like <laughs> the castle sets are fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. They got some really sweet props in there. I love it. But it's a- we talked about story-wise, like, what they expect to be there actually was not there. Yeah, and they get there, and they find everybody there in Crystal, and, and Rizel tells Willow and Mad Morta again that, that, you know, this has happened because of Bad Morta. Bad Morta did this. Right. Yeah. Willow tries again to turn Finn Rizel back into her human form, doesn't he? Yeah, this is the second attempt. He tries to turn her back into a human, and he ends up turning her into a goat. We get, like, the goat talk moving forward. Yeah, like, the goat talk. Willow! You idiot! Rizelle? So stupid. It's, it's a great one, absolutely. Yeah, so we get another one of these transformations. Um, a little bit better than the first one, not quite as good as the last one. There's a specific type of special effect work here that was really impressive that they basically pioneered for the movie, but I don't want to talk about it too much until we get to the third transformation. Okay. So, But yeah, it was a big deal. So at this point, all the villains' army, at least a small, not all of it, but a small portion of their army is after them. So they got to, like, hold up in this castle. And they're kind of, like, fucked, but Val Kilmer, Mad Mardigan, basically turns himself into, like, a one-man army. Yeah, he finds the armory and realizes that it's still full, including a, a complete set of, of Tiraslinian armor. It seems really weird to me that Bavmorda would have this place set upon like that and then not raid the armory when you're done, because that's something like a medieval army absolutely would have done. You want those weapons, but whatever. Yeah. He puts on his, like, badass armor. <laughs> Up until this point, he's kind of just been, like, open shirt, like, loose shirt, like, sword right. guy. But, like, he goes full on night, and, like, he kind of gets, like, home alone with it. Like, he starts setting up traps, like, little... <laughs> Little catapults, like, launching fucking armor at people and stuff. And there are some other rather unwanted guests in this castle. Trolls. Yeah, I hate trolls. <laughs> I do hate trolls. We get a lot in our comments. Right? Um, <laughs> maybe partly my fault. But, uh, uh, yeah, so there are trolls in this castle, and uh, they're not friendly. They don't want the people to be there. They can do some weird things, like crawl along walls. We get some really neat shots of them, like, crawling vertically up and down walls. And uh, they, they come into play during the course of this fight. How would you describe a troll in this movie to someone that had never seen it? Like, they have a very unique look. Yeah, the trolls in this movie are not anything like any other troll I've seen depicted anywhere else. They're like pygmy man monkeys. I, like, they're, they're kind of furry. And they've got this, this weird wrinkly skin. And like, I yeah, I don't know. They're like beast people. I got a good description. Do you remember Land of the Lost? Yes. Chaka. Oh, yeah, that's not a, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty damn close. Absolutely. 
Yeah, they're they're very strange and they they not friendly, violent, and they can crawl vertically on stuff. And uh, yeah, so the the Bavmorda's army eventually gets to Tira's lean behind Willow and crew, and it turns into a huge fight. But the trolls are making trouble during the course of the fight. They're they're screwing with everybody. The trolls don't care which side the people are on. The trolls just don't want any of the people there. They seem to be harassing Willow the most. <laughs> yeah, they don't seem to like Willow at all. Yeah, at all. They seem to be bothering him the most. And Willow, at one point, tries to cross a bridge. And there's a really... This is one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's one that's stuck in my head since childhood. It's this long shot of Willow walking across the bridge towards the upper gates of the castle. And one of the trolls is following him, but it's crawling under the bridge below him. Yeah. It's so good. And then there's another one coming down at him from the wall. And uh, so while everyone else is going nuts fighting the other people, Willow is trying to keep this troll away from him and the baby and the baby. And he's having a lot of difficulty doing it. And, um, he manages to the, there's, there's two of them. One that's coming down the wall and a second one from under the bridge. He manages to deal with the one from under the bridge, but, but very, with a lot of difficulty. He first, he tries to grab one of his acorns. We can turn it into rock, but he drops the acorn on the bridge. He turns one of the bridge planks into rock. Then uh, Bavmorda, or not Bavmorda, uh, Rizel encourages him to use the wand. This is a very, this is a very episode four moment. Like like Luke hearing Obi Wan's voice telling him use the Force to destroy the Death Star. You know, or like Razel's voice from nowhere is like use the wand, and he realizes he's got the wand with him. So he tries to use the wand to kill this troll, and he turns it into something horrifying. <laughs> this was one of my favorite effects of my entire childhood there were moments i loved watching this whole movie but there were moments where i would put the tape in just to watch the scene he turns the troll into this disgusting leathery pulsating bubbling ball of organic disgustingness and it starts growing fucking heads these little snake heads horrible looking little things and willow is so freaked out which you would be i would have been too i would have done the exact same thing he does he punts the thing into the lake below the bridge but the moment it hits the water, the water starts smoking and bubbling. And you don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen, and something does happen. Right. <laughs> yeah, so when this thing lands in the water, it be- basically becomes a giant two-headed dragon. It's not actually a dragon, but, like, it is. They yeah. actually um, called it a dragon in the promotional material that they gave to the press for the movie. I believe it had a name. Yeah, it does have a name. I wrote it down. I'm trying it's to... It's the Ebersisk. Yeah, Ibis, Ibiscus or Ebersisk or whatever. It's yeah. Ebersisk. <laughs> yeah, and they, they gave it a name in the written material, but then they never used it in the movie. And the only places you can actually find the name referenced are in a couple of reviews and um, uh, in some of the, the follow-up material that was written about the movie. Ebersisk, as in Siskel and Ebert. I got some words about them in this movie when we get to the review portion. I mean, we could talk about it now. They put this movie in their worst list of 1988. They both gave it a thumbs down. The two of them were complete assholes. The (laughs) same people that gave a bad review to the first Die Hard. Like, I respect Roger Ebert's credentials, but so many of his reviews were just wrong. I'm sorry, they were wrong. Right. Like, like, I don't understand how how somebody... And then he would give good reviews to stuff that was complete garbage. I think he liked North, or one of them did. (laughs) Yeah, he did like like North. Right? (laughs) Like, like, you fucking asshole. You gave two thumbs down to this and then a good review to North and you didn't like Die Hard? Fuck off. I'm done with you. Like, I just don't understand how the reviews... And I think they criticized... One critic definitely did. I think they did too. They criticized this movie for being too long. And for me, it's like 40 minutes too short. Right. <laughs> like, so... It's so funny. It's like, filmmakers are so 
angry at film critics. You well, know, yeah. Like in fact, I'm pretty sure that the Ubersist, whatever it's called, is supposed to be a reference to a film critic that Roger Lu- or George Lucas didn't like. So wait, what the, 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 the dragon, the monster, Oh, there Ebert was, Sisk. Yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's at, it's Siskel and Ebert. Ebert yeah. Sisk. But, but then there was a second one that was a, a reference to a whole different film critic. Oh, and she knew that it was about her and she would actually refer to it in reviews as a reference to moi. <laughs> like, nice. Yeah. I mean, this battle at Tira's lane is, is off the rails. Like it, it's really cool. Like I said, Mad Mardigan is just basically a one-man army. One moment that I love to just demonstrate this is like he just pops out of a hole, dual-wielding crossbows, and just like takes out some guys and just slinks back into the hole. After Warwick, after Willow turns one of the two trolls into the Ebersisk, he he then has to deal with the second one that's coming down the wall and he screams for help to Mad Mardigan. He goes, Mad Mardigan, help! And Mad Mardigan just puts himself on a catapult and catapults himself right. up to this bridge, which I love that moment. It's it's funny, too, because like he's not like perfect because Mad Mardigan misses. He right. hits the wall <laughs> yeah. and hurts himself and then lands on the troll just like out of luck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he hits the wall and then lands on and then he's struggling with it and Willow just sits there going, get him, get him. It's like, well, would you help him? <laughs> <laughs> like, he came up here to save you. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's, it's a really fun action scene. This is where, like, Sorsha is watching Mad Mardigan, and she's, like, basically in awe of him. She's like, this dude is the shit. <laughs> she doesn't actually do any fighting. She's just watching. And um, eventually her and, like, Mad Mardigan, they, like, either kiss or, like, they, I don't know. I, I forget exactly how it happens, but, like, they, she switches sides in this moment, right? Yeah, I mean, this is really where it happens and part of that was supposed to be driven by this side story of hers that got cut out because it, it during this battle there was supposed to be a scene where she finds her father encased in this crystal and manages to have a sort of conversation with him and the way they edited it made it seem like she was just suddenly so horny for Mad Mardigan she had to go with him which is ridiculous and frankly kind of misogynistic like the reality was supposed to be that, that she'd found her father and realized that Mad Mardigan had been telling her the truth and that he really was on the good side. And that's sort of, the fact that he was this great warrior certainly helped, I mean, on an attraction level, but it wasn't meant to be the only reason she went off with him. Right. I mean, the expanded story makes more sense. That's that's for sure. I'm still, like, I don't hate it as is, but that works better. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think it flushed it out a little more. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is where Eric's army kind of, like, rides in, like, um, the writers of Rohan to kind of like help them out at the last minute, but it's kind of too late because Kale snatches the baby and books it out of there. Like he right. takes the baby right back to Bab Morda. So yeah, and then and, and informs her at the same time that uh, Sorsha has decided to betray them, mm-hmm. which is a callback because she'd been told at the beginning of the movie by one of her people that Sorsha was going to betray them, and she was like, "No, I trust her more than I trust you." Right, and it, yeah, it turns out it was wrong. That the seer has foretold that as well, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ugh. Our heroes, they, they follow Kale back to Bab Morda's castle. They say, you know what? No, we're not going to let this defeat us. Basically, we're going to make a stand against her. Right. Right. Which is kind of like Eric's. You can tell he's like he's had that in him like the whole time from the few interactions we've had with him. Like he's he's been fighting her. He's lost a lot of men to her. They're like, all right, fuck this. We're going to take him on. Right. It's like the third act all our heroes against all the villains and right. they make their camp in front of Bab Morda's castle. 
Yeah, they finally get over there. Bavmorda's castle is a real castle in Wales. Well, the outside of it is a real castle in Wales. Whoa. The, yeah. They, and they went there to shoot, and it was pretty incredible. The The inside of the castle was a set they built. For sure. But, uh, yeah, and they did use, I think, one small mat section to make one of the castle's towers look slightly larger than it really was. But 90% of what you're seeing is the actual structure. I love that. Yeah, me too. And it's an amazing castle. And Davis talked a lot about how much he was impressed by being there. The location scouts had outdone themselves. It's a lesser-known castle somewhere in Wales. It's not one of the big ones a lot of tourists go there to see. But it's this incredible dark stone castle. And it looks it really, evil. It does, yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> it looks like the kind of place an evil sorcerer's queen would live. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very Mordor. It's uh, it's cool. Right. And they, uh, they're they having difficulty figuring out how to get into the place. And, uh, well, no, actually, that's a little later. They do set up a huge camp outside the castle first. They do. And, yeah. Um, the plan is, like, we're going to attack the castle. I don't know exactly how, but they're right. going to attack the castle the next morning. Yeah, and uh, but during the evening time, Bavmorda comes out to take a look at this enemy army that's uh, trying to siege her castle, and uh, she says, no, no, I think the group of you are pigs. <laughs> <laughs> we get to see the extent of her power, which is pretty vast. Yeah, like, she turns an entire army of people, saving for Willow and Rizel, into pigs. Um, the transformation process is great. CG was so hard to use and so primitive at this point, they just did the whole thing in practical. And it's, it's always a, better anyway. It is always better anyway. And like with something like that, it's so hard. Like you've got to get the first set of makeup and appliances on people and shoot stuff. And then you've got to have to go back to makeup for the next stage and then shoot stuff and then back for the third. Like it takes a, a day or more just to get this one transformation. Even though on screen, it's 30 seconds worth of footage. And uh, it does look fantastic. It's amazing. I love it. And then so in order to make this work, they had to fill part of the set with hundreds or thousands of individual pigs. <laughs> So they've got all these pigs wandering around and there's a period before they get turned back where they're all milling around as pigs. And Davis says in the commentary, the pigs were around for so long, they didn't think, and you wouldn't, they didn't think it might be better if all of them were male or all of them were female. They got a mix of male and female pigs and they started to get a little amorous with each other. And um, they were having so much difficulty getting the shots, they resorted to having buckets of ice water they would just throw on the pigs to keep them from humping each other so that they could get these shots oh. <laughs> a lot of pig humping going on. a lot of pig humping maybe the most pig humping on a movie set in history <laughs> <laughs> it is cool seeing everyone get turned into pigs though in in the way that like it's scary yeah. Like, Val Kilmer's face when he's part pig is awesome. I always found that, along with the, the Iborsisk scene, I always found that one to be one of the big ones as a kid. Like, I loved that transfer. It was kind of off-putting. Like, oh my god, how horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Willow doesn't get turned, though, because he uses the wand to protect him and Roselle. Yeah, and she has him sneak off with her to help make a third attempt to turn her back into her human form. And uh, this is the big one. This is the big one. It's the final transformation it's a much more prolonged process than the other ones. It's the one that finally ends up being successful, but it's also the one during which she makes the most transformations. She goes through this morphing process where she becomes a, uh, like an ostrich and, and uh, a, a tiger and, and several other animals in the process of eventually returning to her human form. And this was not originally the way they'd scripted for this sequence to go because they didn't Nobody had thought about doing this because the technology didn't really exist for that process to happen. The only reason that movie really ended up happening 
is because a visual effects supervisor, one of several who worked on the film named Dennis Murin, who'd also done a bunch of the effects of the Star Wars movies and still does, he worked on the prequels. He came up with this idea using relatively new at the time computer systems. Um, and he went to Lucas and Howard and, and told them up front, this is gonna cost a fortune, it's gonna take weeks and I have no idea whether or not it's gonna work. But they took photographs of individual animals from multiple different angles and then managed using late 80s software, they wrote custom software, to find ways on film to then blend the images together in a way that made it look like each one was shifting into the next. And they wrote software that at the time was incredibly advanced, had an algorithm in it that could actually figure out where the where the outer edges were on any given image and then blend it into the to a next. So they, they could run it like a slideshow. And it was so complicated for them to do, the computer, the program, had to make millions of individual calculations for each individual shot. And there were 24 shots in a second of film. So there were hundreds of millions of individual calculations just for a second. And this, this process lasted several seconds. This by late 80s technology is unbelievable this even worked, uh, thanks to ILM and to Dennis Muran. And so they took these photographs of all these different animals and, and people and blended them in a way that allowed it to look like she was transitioning pretty smoothly from one creature to the next to the next as, as Willow made more and more effort to try to turn her back into a person. And the final transformation is a tiger laying out on its belly with its legs behind it and that transitions into Rizelle being on the floor on her face basically in her human form. This, this effect was incredible. I mean, it never should have worked. And it was so substantial and it worked so well that for years, according to ILM staff, for years after they did it, other studios were coming to them asking to use the tech. It got to the point where people got bored of it. And in fact, it was through an advanced version of this tech they developed over the next three or four years that allowed them to do the water aliens in the abyss and... Um, T-1000 and Terminator right, 2. Right, a modified version of it. Yeah, right? and if they if they hadn't done this for Willow, there's a good chance uh, the T-1000 would not have happened. Is this the same technology they used in the Michael Jackson black yes. and white video? Yeah, in fact, Michael Jackson's people went to ILM to have them apply it for that for that specific video. Absolutely. Right, that's really cool. I yeah. mean, it's it's one of those effects that like is used in a lot of things that you like and you know. Right. And you probably take it for granted, but like, this is it. This is where it came from, right? Yeah, this is Genesis. I mean, it's another one of those things like maybe at some point later, somebody would have figured out a similar version of it anyway. You can't say, but at the very least, if they hadn't done this for Willow, it probably would not have appeared for years if it had appeared at all. And if when, when it did eventually appear, it would have been done in a completely different manner. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... Very interesting, and Howard talked a lot about this, his behind-the-scenes stuff that, like, you know, this was, this movie got made on the cusp of, of a lot of new digital tech coming in. Computers at that point had been around since the early 80s. You could see them get used in movies like Tron, but, uh, or, or uh, The Last Starfighter. But they were made this movie at a point where a lot of advancements were just happening, and they still made most of the movie practically, and but were able to, in, 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 uh, integrate some of these new advanced computer effects. Right. I mean, the practical it. stuff is amazing too. Like yeah. we were talking about the dragon earlier. The, it looks so good. It looks better than most stop motion. And I don't know why. Like, yeah. It moves more fluid. Right. Yeah. I, I guess it just had to do with the way I don't have a specific reason other than they just did a really good job with the modeling and, and shooting it. And you know, those, 
those characters that it, the creature wasn't on set. There wasn't even a big sized mock-up of it. They, they did all of it with compositing. They created that character on a small stage, on a mini stage at ILM somewhere and filmed all of its movements and then composited it into the film. And they just did a miraculously good job of it. Yeah. It's amazing. It really is. So after Finn Rizal is turned into her human form, she turns the army back from pigs into their whatever, into people. Right. right? Whatever she, they were before. Whatever. <laughs> back into daikinis. Right. I was going to say humans, but they're daikinis. So uh, they do invade the castle the next day. They have kind of like a, a little tricky plan that Willow comes up with. Like It's like his involvement in the invasion. Yes. Basically, the army hides... And it seems like it's just Willow and Finn Rozelle. So they, they open the gate to come capture them. And then the whole army just kind of like swarms in after, right? Yeah, Bav Morda and her army are not aware that while the rest of them were being turned into pigs, Willow was able to turn Rozelle back into a human. And likewise, they have no idea that Rozelle was able to then turn all the soldiers back into humans. Right. So they think the rest of the army is just a bunch of pigs that have wandered off somewhere. And then it's just Rozelle and Willow trying to get into the castle. Bunch of pigs humping off somewhere. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and they, they, they're, they're so unworried about this, they lower the drawbridge into the castle, and that's when the rest of the army says, ha-ha, we were actually here. They, they come up from under the covers they're hiding under. I do find it a little weird that they could have set that up and hidden like that without the tower guards at the castle noticing it was happening. Overconfidence. But, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that's where we get our big final battle, which is, like, taking place in two areas. Right? There's yeah. Bav Morda's, like, room where she's trying to perform the ritual on the baby, Alora Dannon. Yeah. And then we have, you know, Willow, Finn Rizel, and Sorsha going in there. But then we have, like, the main battle with just, like, the knights. We got Eric and Mad Mardigan fighting the henchmen, including the main general, Kale. Right. So it's kind of two things going on. Yeah, there's clearly a specific procedure that Bav Morda's ritual has to take place according to, but... They never tell you that it has to happen at a certain time of day or on a certain timeline. And I guess she really didn't feel threatened, but she's been rushed this entire movie to find the baby and get rid of it. It's like her number one goal. She even tells Kale at one point her time is running out. She sees this army show up outside the castle. Even if she's not concerned about them at all, even after she turned them into pigs, I would have thought there'd be a moment where she'd turn around and go, you know, maybe I should just do the ritual now and get it over it's with. It's been a long night. Yeah, I guess so, you know. So she waits until the next morning, and then it sets up this whole thing. You gotta have your breakfast the next day. Yeah, I guess she did need her Cheerios before this ritual. <laughs> but... I'd like to imagine, like, Bav Morda just, like, sitting at a table, like, eating Cheerios, reading the back of the box. <laughs> I comp myself, like, I, I, I buy dry breakfast cereal to eat at home on weekends. We were in the week, I don't eat breakfast very often, but... I caught myself doing that last week. I was sitting at my table at home while I had YouTube videos going. I was eating a bowl of cereal, like actually eating Cheerios. No, it wasn't Cheerios. It was Kix or something. It was cereal they normally sell to kids, but that I like. <laughs> and I'm sitting there staring at the back of the box, and it took me two or three minutes to realize it was like a puzzle for eight-year-olds. It's like, what am I doing? I throw this away. <laughs> you couldn't figure it out, huh? Yeah, it was too hard for me. <laughs> I don't know all my colors, so. Ugh. Uh, so a couple of, like, notes, I guess, in the big battle, like, Kale takes on Eric, and you know Eric's gonna die, right? Like, Oh, yeah. He's definitely not gonna survive this movie. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And another unfortunate one, because, like, he was supposed to have more backstory that was tied to Mad Mardigan's backstory. When they were planning on doing more with Mad Mar Mardigan and his backstory, Eric was gonna play a bigger part as well, because they were supposed to have had a relationship that went way back. 
Eric doesn't really use that much. And I, I like the character, and it was sad to see him die, but at the same time, I always felt like I'm not really that invested in this character. Like, I'm sad that he's died, but it's not the same as if, like, Mad Martigan got killed, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's like the friend. He's going to die. And Mad Martigan right. is the greatest swordsman who ever lived. He can't be beat, man. It's true. He's like that mattress guy. He won't be beat. You know? Yeah, I can't be beat. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Mad Martigan, when he's fighting Kale, and like, Kale's pretty tough, but man, man. It's a Martigan, big fight. Mad Martigan smashes him in the face with a sword and breaks that fucking mask. That's a good yeah. moment. It is a really good moment. I like that with the broken mask. That's, that's something you see a lot of in various different like fantasy and sci-fi type stuff like one of their I loved it as a kid but one of one of their favorite um, tropes for Marvel artists over a period of decades was Spider-Man when he's in huge fights is you get that moment where you see him turn toward the panel and he's got like, half his mask is torn and you can see Peter's eye through it yeah. you know and they did even Raimi even copied it in one of the one of the Spider-Man movies you know there's always that obviously in this case Spider-Man's the good guy not the bad guy but it's just one of those sort of trope things where it's like oh he's, 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 he's broken and you can see his face, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, but Mad Mardigan really goes ham on him. You can tell, that even for Mad Mardigan, this is a tough fight. Uh, he might lose it. And it's actually sort of a last-ditch move that, that has him win it. Right, yeah, that's right. Because you think he's, like, done for right there, but he's not. Like, yeah. they, they go up the steps, and they start fighting even more, and Mad Mardigan has, like, in one hand, Eric's, like, broken sword. Yeah. And then in his other hand, like, another sword. And it's, I don't know, it's pretty sweet. You get some good wide shots of just, like, fencing. It's a good fight. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, but he eventually basically tricks Kale into falling onto a sword that he's propped up. He he props the sword up with his foot. I love that, yeah. It's a great one. And I found out, in addition to the the nursemaid, uh, the midwife getting killed by the dogs at the beginning, Davis said... The, the specific moment, a few seconds, where Mad Mardigan is pulling Kale onto the sword got trimmed by the censors in the UK. Oh. The UK release, you don't see that. You just see him fall off the bridge. <laughs> yeah. Man, they can't handle violence over there. No, it's it's really interesting that their censors were so... I mean, we had censorship here, too. It just ended a bit earlier. But, yeah, very interesting how picky they are about those little moments. At one point earlier in the battle, I, I really like when Eric, before he dies, he, like pours like the hot oil bucket on like the- that's a really good one yeah but like i that it, it, actually this specific viewing i'd never thought about it before it doesn't seem to me they had enough time to collect or boil that much oil <laughs> i don't really know where it came from but well, fine it's a good moment i like it good point <laughs> right uh but the main conflict is happening in like bav morta's room right yeah i mean because the main impetus here aside from them all surviving is to stop her from killing the baby right and this is where we see Finn Rizal, the whites, having the um, the grandma wet t-shirt contest in the rainy room. <laughs> yeah, that was, man, it's like a little kid. That was the one sort of, I, I was expecting her to, because she says at one point, I'm a young, beautiful woman, you know? And you're expecting when she gets turned into a sorcerer, she's going to be this really beautiful, not to say that the actress is unattractive, but they just expect her to be this beautiful, like, 22-year-old. Well, she is 75, Steve. You know, it's true. And even she says, like, she's got no idea how long she'd been trapped in the body. A little weird to me she could be in there for six decades and not know. But, yeah, she, when she gets turned back into a human, she's like, you know, has it really been this long? How did I get so old? Yeah. So, but, yeah, yeah, old woman wet t-shirt contest I could have done without. That part I didn't need. <laughs> I like Bab Morda's costume under her robes. She's wearing, like, mummy wraps. Dude, yes, and, and Davis even made a mention during the commentary during that scene that he really liked that, too. Yeah. And I do like it because it's evil in a really strange way, but it also always makes me think of Mumra from Thundercats because that's always the way they depicted him too he's got a robe on and then under that it's just bandages yeah <laughs> like I don't know I was I mean I always think of Skeletor when I think of Bab Morda 
Like to me, there's like a mental connection. There's something with like the aesthetic of like the castle and stuff or something. It's funny you you go Skeletor and I go Mumra. For yeah. me, I think she's more like Mumra. But either way, yeah. <laughs> this is where we get like the the wizard fight, right? Yeah, the wizard fight. Another sort of tropey action movie thing. I mean, not not really even all that dissimilar to. Um, the uh, the magic fight at the end of Big Trouble in Little China, you know, yeah, they they go at each other with spells and Bev Morta lights Rizelle on fire and Rizelle shoots her with ice and one thing Davis mentioned in his commentary that I didn't really thought of is by the time they get to the end of the fight, the two of them are so exhausted they've basically just just relegated to choking each other. Yeah, <laughs> it's like which is actually kind of kind of a good way to play it out. Like they've just burnt themselves out trying to kill each other with spells. Right. <laughs> like, but Bavmorda eventually sort of seems like she's going to win. She manages to knock Rizal out, which is another one maybe my another little nitpicks. It's, it's the whole movie, Rizal's the one. She's she's the sorceress. She's going to fix this. She's going to save the baby. She's got Chalindria's wand. I mean, when she starts the fight with Bavmorda, she even says, I have Chalindria's wand. Like, I'm going to fuck your shit up. I'm going to fuck your whole world up with this wand. And then she sort of just ends up getting choked out. It's a little bit like the the, the Night King in, in uh, uh, fucking Game of Thrones, but whatever. <laughs> There's a moment when Finn Rizel gets thrown across the room, and I only noticed this because of how high quality it is on Disney Plus. Right. And like I paused it, and like her stunt double, it's so funny, dude. Like it's a person wearing this old person mask, right. and you can see like the Velcro strap around the head. Like if you pause it, it's, it's good. It's good. You know, that's one of the problems. Quotes problems with like Blu-rays. You know, you would have been able to see it on 35mm film, but you can't pause the movie in a theater. And the home video releases prior to DVD, well, at least for most, because most people would have watched this movie on VHS. Right. And VHS is just a really low resolution format, so you it don't sucks. notice these things. It does. Yeah. Yeah. If you pause on VHS, you're not going to see anything. It's no, just, it's all blurry. It's fuzzy bullshit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and SVHS was a little bit better, but not a ton. Like, yeah. You know, the, it, 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 you could do that with a little bit with laser discs, but no, almost nobody owned them back then. Right. Yeah. You know. Except for you. Except for me. Yeah. Cause I'm weird and obsessive and yeah. Do you have this movie on laser discs? I do. You know that they didn't release this film on DVD until 2001. So up until then, if you wanted to watch it on home video, it was VHS or laser disc. That was it. That was really only two choices. And the, mm. the VHS tapes were cheap, but they wear out. So if you had a well of VHS tape from 1988, that shit was broken within a few years yeah. or too worn out to watch. Yeah, and the Laserdisc was cheap. So I, that, I made a point to buy the Laserdisc of that. And the, the DVD, Fox still owned the home video rights to this at the time. I think it was Fox. And the, they, they released that DVD. It was out for like six months, and then they discontinued it. So if you didn't get one, the only way to get it was then to pay like 140 bucks for it on eBay. Yeah, like, I got one. Yeah, right? Which, if you got it when it was new, it was great. But like if you didn't get one when it was on the show, there's no way I'm going to pay $100 for this on eBay. Fuck that. Let's watch the Laserdisc. <laughs> Uh, but the, the Blu-ray looks great. Very nice. Very high definition. Looks fantastic. Mm. So you were talking about Finn Rizal getting knocked out. At one point, like, after Willow has to fight an animated cauldron. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> he faces off against Bab Morda. That's such a Disney moment. It's like a, like a Beauty and the Beast character. It's just cabinet on legs that walks itself around. Right. I feel like it should have been carrying food to Belle or something, you know? <laughs> but uh, Willow has to like bullshit his way through the situation <laughs> like he's like he's talking to Bab Morn he's like I'm a great and powerful sorcerer and she's like oh yeah what you got then he throws the acorn right he's got the acorn and it's like, a great moment as a kid I was like yes finally the fucking acorn because I really wanted to see him use that shit on somebody yeah and the, there's only one instance in the entire story where it actually worked and it's the scene they cut out 
Because right. the, the, the two other times he drops it on a bridge and he uses it against Bev Morton, it doesn't really work. Right. She <laughs> it starts to turn her and she's, she has like an oh shit moment, but right. then she, she can resist it with her powers. Yeah, that's it's a great moment. The hand starts turning to stone and there's a second where there's a look on her face where it's like, oh shit, I didn't expect this to happen. <laughs> yeah. But then she reverses it. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me, and this is a totally separate thing, but Pee-wee's big adventure, right? <laughs> the beginning of the movie, he goes to a magic shop. Oh, right? yeah. He gears up. He gets a that. bunch of stuff. He oh, gets yes. a boomerang bow tie. Yeah. Never fucking uses the boomerang Never. bow tie. Never. I think there's a deleted scene, but I don't remember exactly. The but- Rube Goldberg machine that makes him his eggs and the scene in the magic shop are two of my three favorite mo- moments in the whole movie. I think my third favorite is probably Large Marge with the eyes. But like, and I love the whole movie. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I don't like the rest of it, but those three moments are just so good. I know. <laughs> Plus the breakfast machine song is like, it is the music. I can hear it in my head. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God, that, that, that music will be etched into my brain for the remainder of my life. It will be playing the moment I die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll make sure of that. So you, right, thank you. I'll be there. <laughs> um, I like that Willow, like bullshitting his way through the situation. He says, I'm going to send Alora Dan into a place where evil cannot touch her. And then like, Bab Morta's response is so funny. She's just like, no such place. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, he tries to do, he repeats his magic trick from, um, from the fair where he made the pig disappear unsuccessfully. But this time he manages to do it. He makes um, Alora disappear. I should have mentioned earlier, he actually did spend months working with a British magician named David Burglass to learn how to do some basic tricks, including the one he does early in the movie where he passes the flaming stick through his arm. Uh, Burglass was a super famous English magician. He's been dead for years at this point, but he was one of the first magicians to ever appear on television doing magic tricks. And reportedly, you know the trick where like you pick a card and then put it back in the deck and the magician picks it from out of the deck? Uh, Reportedly, he invented that trick. He was supposed to have been the first person to have ever done it. Wow. Yeah, and so Burglass spent months with him training him how to do it. And then, yeah, so going back, he tries to trick Bav Morda by making the baby disappear. Which she believes, and everyone believes, but the thing is, maybe you can explain what happens, Steve. Like, Bav Morda just gets struck by lightning and disappears. <laughs> yeah, so they don't explain it very well, and it took me years to figure this scene out myself. When I was a kid, I didn't really understand it myself. I only pieced it together based in part by things people have said in like commentary tracks, is that she's got this dish of, of what is either blood or like magic paint. They, they don't tell you. But it's somehow is key to this ceremony. And somehow, in her moment of surprise, when Bav Morta knocks this, this container of liquid all over herself, that triggers this magic process that she's been doing. And she gets wrapped up and sent to whatever alternate place she intended for the baby to go. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's really supposed to end with, it's, it's sort of like hoisted by her own petard. You know, she ends up sending herself to this place. Yes. But yeah, it's another another one of my nitpicks, kind of a vague moment. And like, again, again as a kid, like, I don't think I would, I don't think I really knew, understood what that was supposed to be until I was 17 or 18 years old. I'd watched the movie 20 times. It was like, I don't get it. <laughs> well, that makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And that's how they defeat her. I mean, she's, well, she ends up defeating herself, Defeating I guess, herself, for the yeah. Which is, I mean, I, I guess super lucky for the characters because if she'd lasted long enough to find the baby, I don't think they would have beaten her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Willow, uh, it cuts, like, and I guess, like, things, like, wrap up kind of quickly. Like, the 
the castle is reformed, like Sorsha, I guess, is uh, reunited with her father. You said that that was from a kind of a deleted scene, but we we see him in the frame. Yeah, right? that's the thing. He appears outside of his like crystal enclosure at the end. They're standing with her, and you, it's, based on the theatrical cut, you've got no idea who he is. They they'd already shot that scene, so they didn't have a way to remove him from the shot. But yeah, he was that was supposed to have been her father, and during the process of the battle, she was supposed to have freed him and kind of reunited with him. I guess we're led to believe that, like, her and Mad Mardigan are going to raise Yeah, the, the I baby. guess there's implication there. The two of them are going to stay at Tira's Lane and raise the baby with Rizal's help between themselves. Yeah. So, which is nice. Yeah, it is pretty good. And Willow gets a book of magic. Right. He's now going to be an aspiring sorcerer, which is what he wanted in the beginning of the movie. Right. So, you know, we get to see, like, that come around full circle. You know, <laughs> good bit of a character arc, I think. He heads home back to the Nelwyn village. And he does the magic trick that the High Aldwin does earlier in the movie. Like he, I guess he studied on the way home or whatever he, from the magic book, he like makes a bird appear in the air and yeah. then it shits in Burgle Cut's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> right? There, that, that, there's, a, uh, there's another scene, I forgot to mention it, where, where Laura throws up on Burgle Cut. And I don't know why. I don't know where people get all this weird, conflicting information. I swear people just make shit up about movies and put it on the IMDb page to see if anyone will notice. But, like, there's either on IMDb or on Wikipedia, there's a claim that the baby wasn't supposed to throw up, that it threw up on him, and everyone thought it was so funny they kept it in the movie. Davis's story is totally contradictory. He says not only was it intentional, it wasn't throw up. It was like a milkshake. Right. You know? I, 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 that doesn't seem right. Yeah. Like, it's shot, like, so perfectly. Like, it's intent, yeah. Like it's shot as if that's framed as the joke. Exactly. Like, there's, it doesn't come off like it was an accident at all. <laughs> you know? So And there's, there's a handful of those. Again, with the Hobbit thing, we've discussed about this. I can't remember which movie it was anymore. I think one of the ones I was on with you and Jonathan, another pod, we're talking about there's a bunch of stuff on IMDb that, like, isn't substantiated anywhere. I have no idea why people believe this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to listen to our pod for the real facts, my yeah, friends. Yeah, or at least read around a little bit. If you see something on the trivia page in IMDb, verify it before you believe it. I mean, I've, I think I've been a victim of that myself, so I get it. Right. But um, Willow and Kaya are reunited at the end as well, which I think is quite nice. I, I, I buy their family unit. Like, I really do. Like, it, it warms my heart to see them together again. And when she says goodbye, and she says, you know, we've never been apart. Like, right. I, I don't know, maybe it's just because just she's a good actor. No, like, they're, they're very sweet with each other. Absolutely. It's very warm, like a natural kind of warmth. And the, the kids were very good as well. It's really funny that uh, Warwick Davis's future father-in-law and his daughter, who would become his future wife, were, were actually both on this film. They were members of the Nellon Village. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was not in a relationship with her at the time, but he met her for the first time there. I've seen Warwick Davis in person. Oh, yeah? At Universal Studios Hollywood nice. when I was a kid in the 90s. It was probably around 95-ish. Um, I was going into the front with my family, and I saw him get out of a car near the front. You know how the, you can get out of a car near the front area? Yeah, where the globe is? Yeah. yeah. So, like, he was just exiting a car. And I, I, I didn't say anything to my family until, like, he was gone because I didn't want to be like... That's Warwick Davis. Yeah, exactly. Plus, I didn't know his name. I would have just called him Willow. <laughs> Willow, absolutely. A lot of, yeah, kids will do that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I absolutely, like, I always felt like, I mean, I think part of it was I grew up around industry people, and I, I sort of got an idea of what it was like for them to be bothered in public. I, I I guess bothered sounds mean. Like, I think a lot of them really appreciate the fact that they have fans who want to talk to them. But, yeah, I also think, you know, when you're, you, every time you go out into public, you're like an object of observation, and every stranger in the grocery store and at the theme park and at Starbucks wants to talk to you about your movies and how much they like you. And it's like, 
thank you. I respect that. It's nice. But at the same time, like you're strangers. I don't need to talk to a world of strangers. You know, and there's even a moment. Oh God, Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott with the big mustache. He did the voiceover in the big Lebowski. He's been in a million movies. Oh yeah. He said before he even did a joke about it in an episode of family guy. He starred in that people constantly just approach him and start reading lines from the big Lebowski. It's like, I was in the movie. I don't need you to read the script to me. Like, but you don't want to be an asshole because then people go around telling everybody, oh, I met more Sam Elliott in public. He's a complete dick. He didn't want me reading half a script to him. Like, no, just leave him alone, you know? So if I see Sam Elliott, I should not go ask him if he has a good sarsaparilla. Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, I, he seems like the kind of guy where if you just said, hey, I'm a big fan, nice to see you in public, I, I don't think he'd mind. But yeah. like, you, you, don't, you don't need to read the script to them. They weren't <laughs> in the movie. They know what Cut said. Like... I have this idea of like if I run into a celebrity in public and I say like, oh, hey, I'm a big fan of yours. I, I want to pull the most obscure movie they've ever been in. Like if I see Tom Hanks, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, I love Mazes and Monsters. Big right? fan of yours. You know, I, I, I think honest to God, I mean, I can't I don't know every actor in Hollywood or how they would react. But like I think a lot of the time that actually would get you at least a little bit of credit. Right. You know, because at least in that case, it's like, oh, I loved Big. Like, oh, wonderful. You've seen the movie I was in. Everyone else has seen. Thanks. I have a feeling everyone just yells at Tom Hanks, run, Forrest, run. Yeah, probably. Him. I bet he got that for years, even if he doesn't get it anymore. Yeah. You know, some, some of those actors, I, I, I bet a lot of people walked up to Billy Bob Thornton for a long time and did Sling Blade stuff. You know? <laughs> like, imagine some random dickhead coming up to you with, like with our eyes crossed doing the sling blade voice right? at you. And that's what I'm, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like you, you're an actor. You don't want to be a prick. You especially don't want to be a prick to people who are going to buy tickets to your movies. But when you get that a dozen times, every time you leave the house, like eventually you're going to want to hit somebody. <laughs> like you want, you, you got to understand you're famous and people are going to want to talk to you, but come on. So you think Ezra Miller was right? Yeah. Yeah, probably. You no, know, my God, you're kidding me. right? No, well, I mean, look, I think there's, I think there's a kernel to it, you know, I, like <laughs> Steve, get the fuck out of oh, here. Oh, come on. I mean, I, I, people seem to have this weird impression that they own celebrities. It's like I bought a ticket to three movies you were in. So if I see you in public, I now have the right to engage you in a two hour conversation. <laughs> he choked a woman out. <laughs> oh, well, no, I'm not. That's no, no, no. That's not the part I'm justifying. No, no. He should never have ever have done that. <laughs> but like I can understand being frustrated. You know what I mean? Not to that point. Not to the point that you choke someone. Mm. Fuck that guy for doing that. Ezra Miller seems like a complete piece of shit. But I can't understand being frustrated in yeah, general. For sure. You know, yeah. it must be tough. I think, yeah, I mean, it goes with the territory, but I think, yeah, it is probably, it must be really strange to never be able to go outside without knowing people are going to bother you. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's Willow, man. Uh, do you have any final thoughts about the movie before we do ratings and a couple other things I have to say? Um, what other notes that I have here? Uh, Ron Howard got the opportunity to direct the sequel to Cocoon and turned it down to do this. Um, Good man, Ron Howard. Right. He actually described his experience on Willow as his first big cinematic adventure as a director, uh, which is pretty big praise. They actually ended up using a bunch of different babies um, for the movie. The two they used most often were twins, Kate and Ruth Greenfield. They never acted in another movie again. But their parents, who were on set for the whole movie, got invited to Val Kilmer's wedding to Joanna Whaley. So those two people get to spend the rest of their life saying that they got invited to one of Val Kilmer's weddings, which is pretty crazy. Um, another woman who claimed to have been one of the babies they used while shooting in New Zealand bumped into Warwick Davis somewhere a few years ago and got pictures taken with him. She's never been verified, but she claims she's one of the kids they used, which is possible. Huh. Uh, I think her name was Laura Hopkirk. 
they uh, the movie did not make as much money as they'd hoped. I think it would have made more. Part of the problem for them was that it went it hit theaters right around the same time. Speaking of Tom Hanks, it hit the theaters almost the exact same time as Big. Oof. It also hit at almost the exact same time that Rambo three and Crocodile Dundee two were out. And given that fantasy films weren't that big at the time anyway, I think that was bad news for them. They really should have held the release. Um, that really has like all the um, categories covered. If you think about it, you got the action movie. Right. You got the comedy. And what was the other one? Um, uh, Dundee 2, Big, and Rambo 3. Yeah, and then you got the family movie. Yeah. Right. I, I want to talk about the box office just really briefly. So this movie had a $35 million budget. It made theatrically $57 million, But when I Google Willow box office, it comes back as $137 million. So I think a lot of that, the biggest portion of that is from home release. Yeah, well, usually, no, I don't know. I haven't seen the site you looked at. Usually, home video release is counted as separate revenue. Oh, okay. But, so it must be overseas. Yeah, I was going to say this movie did perform better at overseas box office than it did here. So I would bet the larger percentage that that was was overseas revenue. Gotcha. Yeah, but it did also. It also did very well on home video. It did well on home video just about everywhere. I think people figured out it existed after it had been out in theaters and rented it a lot. Warwick Davis uh, used some of the money he made on Return of the Jedi to buy himself a nice video camera setup, and then he ended up using it to film video diaries of himself working on this. I've never seen the whole thing, but I've seen excerpts of it. It's really fun. Oh, yeah. I believe it's on the Blu-ray. Yeah. I think I heard about it. Yeah, absolutely. Some of it is. Um, uh, That was, yeah, that was pretty much it. All right. Well, before we do ratings, I want to... Give a shout out real quick to a podcast called No Highway Option, Steve. No Highway Option is a, a film discussion podcast with a very unique take. They review a movie and they compare it specifically to the 2005 Vin Diesel movie, The Pacifier. So every movie they review is reviewed from the point of comparison to The Pacifier. Yes. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on that podcast very recently. We reviewed Blank Check. Uh, we discussed it, and then we did our comparison to the pacifier, of course. God, it's amazing how much that movie still gets talked about. It is not by any means a classic Disney movie, and yet anyone who saw it as a kid seems to have some sort of connection to it. It sucks. It really is not a very good movie. Yeah, There's really no way bad. you would do all that with a million dollars either, even even with the early 90s money. <laughs> but I want to let the listeners know that um, probably a little bit after this podcast is released, look out for No Highway Option, where I'm a guest. They have a different guest every episode. And then the guest gets to pick the next movie they did. So I picked a movie that'll be a surprise, I guess. It's a, a very different movie than Blank Check. I'll tell you afterwards, <laughs> Steve, what movie they're doing next. Um, but yeah, check them out. They're called No Highway Option. They're pretty cool guys. But let's get into ratings, Steve. On any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Willow? Oh, man. On a scale of 1 to 10 babies that will be future monarchs, <laughs> you know what I'm going to give it a 9 it's almost perfect for me it's very close I still find this movie eminently enjoyable it's a lot of fun to watch the practical effects still look fantastic the little bit of CG they used in it is great the story is compelling the characters are awesome the action is fun it's never boring for a minute I think it's engaging in all the ways it's supposed to be I've got a few little complaints about inconsistency and story points. I don't think they did as, as well as they could have to fully explain. It's interesting watching Ron Howard talk about the editing process and the deleted scenes because from he talks about wanting needing to delete stuff to reduce the running time. There were critics who complained they thought it ran too long. I have the complete opposite take. I, I, I think this movie 
not that it's bad without it, but I, I honestly could have put another 20 to 40 minutes in this movie. It mm. would not have bothered me as a three-hour epic. I think the Lord of the Rings movies proved that people will sit through fantasy films that long. It just has to be engaging enough to keep your attention. I think it would have given them a chance to expand on that world more and give more of that background. Um, it also would have kept potentially the scene where he uses the third acorn. But, you know, overall, even though I'm bothered by those little things, it's just such a good movie. It's been such a good part of my life from almost my entire life that, like, yeah, 9 out of 10 for me for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you there, man. I'm also going to give this a 9 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, What should I give it? 9 out of 10 humping pigs. (laughs) 9 out of 10 pecs. What's it going to be? 9 out of 10 greatest swordsmen who ever lived. 9 out of 10 Kilmers. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it's going to be. I love this movie. It warms my heart to watch this movie. Yeah. Um, Everything about it. I love Warwick Davis in this movie. I love the score. I love, like, the the grand shots of them traveling. The intricacy of the sets and all the little stuff, like the crow's cages and, like, the the little skulls that are in Tira's lean and just, like, the way that whole area looks. The old decrepit catapults with cobwebs on them. You know, the overall story, I'm interested in the story to like, you know, this, it's a big epic thing. This is going to be an event that changes their land forever. You know, they have to get this done. And the unlikely hero is thrown into the situation as is often the case in, you know, your classic hero's journey. It's it's a beautiful thing, man. It, I just love this movie. It's so fucking good. It was, you know, and I'm going to tack on one little things I forgot to mention during my final notes the Nelwyn village was a real village they built it just like they did with Hobbiton and just like with Hobbiton they, they abandoned it when they were done with the movie and it, same same exact scenario people continued to go to where the village was built to visit it for decades afterward and as of at least 10 years ago or so most of it was still there but the woods around it had sort of overtaken it it's a really great set someday if I get to New Zealand I would love to see if I can find it you know? That's the one to go to. Yeah. Fuck Hobbiton. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see both. <laughs> no, but, both, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, as much as I love the Lord of the Rings movies, this was such a huge part of my life growing up. If I could only do one, I'd probably go to, to the Nelwyn Village first. I love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. I really do. I think it's it's really great. Um, but I have a closer attachment to Willow. Yeah, me too. I would agree with you. I, like, I love way. both, but yeah, definitely I'm closer to this one. Yeah. I mean, and as far as I'm concerned, Willow did it first. Now, yeah. the, the books of Lord of the Rings existed first, but cinematically, Willow yeah. brought us some of the things that Lord of the Rings also gave us later. Yeah. Well, you know, when I, when I was a kid, and for a lot of other kids, maybe for you as well, like when I was a kid, when this was out and I was watching it, for me, The Hobbit was Ralph Bakshi's animated version, you know, and the, 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 which is, I'm still amazing to this day, but yeah. I didn't even know about it when I was a kid. Oh, really? I knew nothing about the, that there was a book, that that was a movie, anything. Oh, I, you know what? That one, I might have to... I think that was my mom. I think my mom showed me the Ralph Bakshi one when I was seven or eight years old, and that's how I became aware of it. But yeah. I have seen the animated Lord of the Rings movie, and we did a podcast on it at Spoilers. The Rotoscope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so good, man. I love that one. I love the depiction of Gollum in that. I didn't love it. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I got a hard disagree with you, man. But we got a podcast on that, though. That's over at Spoilers. The listeners can check that out. It's another podcast I'm on. If you, the listeners, want to write in, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. But I ask a favor of all our listeners. It's easy for you to do, but it means a lot to us. Costs you nothing. Leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. That's what I need you to do, listeners. If you could help me out with that, I would love it. 
Also, give this a thumbs up on YouTube if you're listening or if you're not. When you get a chance, subscribe to our channel, at least just to give us the occasional thumbs up. These little things help us out a lot, and we do appreciate it, don't we, Steve? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I feel like people are sort of obligated to tell me how good I am, so. Yeah. <laughs> no, please, 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 with all uh, 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 small ego. Give us good reviews. We need them. <laughs> You could also leave us a comment on YouTube if you're feeling extra friendly. Our Instagram is Big Dumb Movie Podcast, where I post a lot of memes and I make posts when we're releasing new episodes and what they're about. So check us out there. It's been a lot of fun doing this, Steve. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. Anytime. And uh, thank you all for listening. Play us out, Jackson. Jackson.